I had an ayahuasca vision like this that was really, really something where I saw, basically saw the future and that that um, we all wake up. We, we all get to wake up into and become an enlightened society. But we, <laughs> we become an enlightened society at the same moment we become extinct because it was like the worse it gets, the more people wake up. And then the more people wake up, the more this opposite force comes to try to squelch it and the, like this. And so you follow that. It's like, Enlightenment and extinction sort of happen at once, and it was a it was a crazy powerful vision, and I see that happening today. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Jack. Today, Paul is talking with Robert Forte, a scholar and researcher of the ancient and modern uses of psychedelic drugs. If you enjoyed today's performance, please consider leaving us a five star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. A big thank you to our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Paleo Valley, and Organifi, our podcast sponsors, Ned and Wild Pastures, and our preferred product sponsor, Peak Life. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products they produce. Please check the show notes for links, discount codes, and details. And now here is Paul speaking with Robert Forte about the real truth of psychedelics. Today, we're going to have a very important conversation with Robert Forte, one of the world's leading experts on psychedelics, not only their use, but the history of them. His books are fascinating. He's fascinating. The title of the podcast today is The Real Truth of Psychedelics. There's a lot of things I want to dive into that touch on many of the things I talk about with Hamilton Souther and my very important podcast with Hamilton called Plant Medicine Essentials. So if you haven't listened to that one and you have an interest in psychedelic medicines or plant medicines, I highly recommend that because what we're going to talk about today will build on that, but give you a lot more history. And uh, having looked at a number of Robert's books and listened to some of his podcasts, I'm super excited to have Robert with us today. Robert, welcome to Living 4D. Well, thank you, Paul, very much. I've been looking forward to this uh, recorded conversation with you. You and I have had one or two chats, which have been just um, really great for me to connect with you and enriching in a lot of ways. So let's go for it. Yeah, me too. I really enjoy you and your mindset and your values around plant medicines. And I think what we're going to get into today is extremely important for people to hear. I listened to your podcast with Kyle Kingsbury on his podcast, which was excellent. And I listened to a podcast you did with a group that focused on psychedelics, and it was excellent as well. So I was super excited when Kyle said he could connect us and I uh, felt like we were soul brothers. So uh, I think it's important that we share the things that are important. I'd love it if you could begin with your developmental history and your work and experiences with psychedelics, all the great pioneers you've worked with, because it's pretty damn impressive. I mean, you were right there in the middle of this whole psychedelic movement all the way back you know, in the 60s and with people like Ramdas and Leary and all the great minds, Albert Hoffman, it would be great to hear more about you and how this all came about for you and some of the things you got involved in and with who you got involved with to lay the foundation for the rest of the podcast. 
Okay, thank you. I, I just wanted to add at the beginning that uh, to mention also Ryan Sprague's podcast that I, I did right, with him. Yes. Yeah, that was the first one. And he mentioned you and that, then I tuned into you a little bit. And then he introduced me to Kyle. And now you, you know, and I've just really over the past couple of years, um, started to come out and be a little more public about my, um, my views about psychedelics. And so, um, and I'm also writing a book right now. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to have these conversations and um, get this get this flowing more. At the beginning, I, I feel like it's a little bit tricky because um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say some things in the next couple hours with you that are going to seem very uh, critical or um, you know negative about psychedelic drugs and the psychedelic renaissance. And I want to emphasize at the beginning that I'm. I've developed this perspective, first of all, because of a great love and appreciation for the, the healing power, the sacred potential, the transformative power for individuals and our culture, that, that I've devoted my life to the study of these drugs and their positive and negative uses. And so I want, I want listeners to understand that I'm not, I'm not a critic. I'm a really, I'm an aficionado. I'm a scholar. And what I'm going to say may come across as challenging or difficult, but please appreciate that it's coming from my heart out of a great deal of experience, not only, as you say, with these men and some women that have brought these drugs into society, but my own personal deep experience uh, with practically all of the entheogens in a context. And for me, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I, ever since I was a child, I felt sort of called to understand what these substances were. It's a kind of funny little story. When I was in, you know, I'm, I'm right now I'm 66 years old. And so it was, it was 1966 or 67. I was in, I think I was in fifth grade. I wasn't fifth grade. And it was my day to do a current events report where the students had to pick up some item that was in the newspaper and present it to the class. And so on the way out, to go to school that day, I grabbed um, from the mail table in my house um, a Life or Look magazine story about L and it had LSD on the cover. Okay, so this is right at the very beginning of the 60s movement, right? And LSD, you know, the strange drug that got out of control or something. And I just looked at it and I said, oh, that's interesting. I'll I'll take that. So I carry it into school and it's, I'm, I'm about to give my report. I don't know anything about LSD. I haven't looked at the magazine at all. <laughs> I asked my fifth grade teacher, what is, so what is LSD anyway? What does LSD stand for? And she looked at me and she had this little grin on her face and she said, um, let's save democracy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was going to say Lucy in the sky of diamonds. <laughs> Let's save democracy. Now I'm a kid from Boston. And so democracy, you know, the whole American mythos and patriotic spirit was in my blood. But of course that just went right over my little head. And, um, you know, I forget what I said in my presentation, but I always kind of had this funny little association with, with psychedelic drugs and politics. And then, but, but then, you know, a few years went by and, um, you know, the 60s is starting to, you know, rage. And I'm growing up outside of New York City, and the drugs are coming into my grammar school and high school, and kids are taking them. And I, I had always kind of fancied myself as an athlete. I was really into health, and I played sports. 
And these kids that were getting into psychedelic drugs at that time were, they were just like weirding out, you know, like they were, they were, it was kind of messing them up. And I could see that. And I said to myself and my little group of friends, like, we're never going anywhere near those drugs. Those are, there was a, a, a sense that there was something foul about them. They were fucking kids up. And, um, and I felt that way all the way up into college. I, I went around to a couple of different colleges. And then finally, I got interested in meditation. I got interested in meditation because I was a golfer. And my brother suggested that meditation might help me in my concentration, stilling my mind for golf. And so I got interested in meditation. And oh, my God, it had a very powerful, positive effect on my life. And so I became fascinated with how did where did meditation come from? How did, how did ancient people 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, come up with these simple technologies of focusing con- consciousness and these metaphysical systems? Where did that come from? So I enrolled in a class. I was going to Columbia University in New York at the time. I enrolled in a class in the history of Indian Buddhism and learned that first day about the, the Rig Veda. The Rig Veda being the oldest of the extensive body of writings of, of Indian religion, and that the Rig Veda was largely about these ancient ceremonies of collecting a plant called Soma that was also a god and making a drink out of it and consuming the drink and having visions of the cosmic order and man and humanity's place in the cosmic order. And this was, I'm, I'm rapt attention here. And then my teacher, the professor, says that uh, scholars have wondered for years and years, centuries, what was Soma? And he said, I remember this so clearly, he wrote on the board, the leading theory that Soma was a hallucinogenic mushroom. And this theory was put forth by a Wall Street banker named R. Gordon Wasson. And he writes this name on the board, and it was just like a moment for me, like, Wow, that's a lot of information. Like I had, first of all, I thought that these mushrooms and psychedelics were trivial distractions or dangerous, in spite of all that fuss in the 60s. Like I thought Timothy Leary was a clown. But then for him to mention R. Gordon Wasson and that it was a banker, a Wall Street banker who had this theory and had studied these things. Well, that was just so fascinating to me that I I left the class when it was over and I went down to Strand's bookstore on Broadway and I shopped around and I bought a couple of books about one, The Joyous Cosmology by by Alan Watts with a preface by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. And I just was, I just devoured for the next, you know, few months, I devoured every book I could get my hands on about these, about psychedelic drugs, realizing that, my goodness, something is We've, we've been missing something with all that that happened in the 60s. Something has been overlooked. And little did I know, this was, this was 1978. It was a, during a period of time in our culture where psychedelics had sort of, you know, they had exploded into the culture, but then they'd sort of petered out. It was a quiet period. And I just thought, I'm going to learn everything I can about this. Little did I know that within a few years, I would be meeting these people, Timothy Leary and Gordon Wasson, and being in, living at their house or invited into their home and going through their archives. And, and uh, that's really how it started right there. I left Columbia, and then I moved to California. 
and I enrolled to finish my psychology degree, and I enrolled in a class with a man named Frank Barron. Now, psychedelic historians, they, they might not even know this name, Frank Barron, but he was really one of the most significant people in the first psychedelic movement. He was, he was the guy who started the psilocybin project at Harvard. He was the one who turned on Timothy Leary. And he, was, he became my professor and mentor and close friend for the next 20 years. And that was really what began my, my, uh, my career as a, as a scholar and a practitioner of this. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, story of your beginnings. And I, I love the, what's, what I find profound in it is, you know, as a student of the soul, that right from the very beginning of you grabbing that magazine about LSD and your observations, it's, it's as though that there's something in the guiding entelechy of Robert Forte that was being drawn towards his life's work and, and something very, very important to do exactly what we're talking about here today, which is to clear up a lot of confusion demystify yet fortify the place of plant medicines within a legitimate spiritual practice for their effective use and the development of humanity i think it's it's you, you see i think there's a soul thread in there which is quite impressive yeah i again i appreciate you saying that and and noticing that because that's um when i think back on that i that's what i realized too it was like a, these are magic moments and, um, and, and being, being as old as I am, you know, I was, I was too young for that first wave of psychedelia in the 60s. And, um, and it always felt like my responsibility once I got in, because I, I, I dove into all that stuff, like the, the people of the Harvard Project, but became, you know, important mentors and big brother figures for me. And there were a lot of mistakes made back then. And there's a lot of levels to this. You know, there were, there's, there's, you know, the, the use of psychedelics in psychotherapy. There's the use of psychedelics in for to catalyze a revolutionary anti-war movement. There's the use of psychedelics by the CIA to suppress an anti-war movement. There's the sacred esoteric practices. You know, all these things. It felt like I was learning from these guys, their mistakes, their triumphs, and it has felt like a responsibility of mine to convey that to this generation as I, and I can really see things that are going on all of these different um, these different movements you know the book that I'm writing is called altered states of America psychedelic movements plural of the 20th and 21st century because there's one group of drugs that we can all agree on the psychedelic drugs or entheogens but there are many different groups of people, there are different movements of people that use them with entirely different, often opposite agendas that I think it's, um, you know, that you and I are looking at, we're going to kind of tease these apart a little bit so that people that take an interest in these, this field have the, the tools to make important distinctions. Yeah, I have your book in my hand, Timothy Leary, Outside Looking In, one of the things you did for me through the podcasts I've listened to, and I'll say thank you again for Ryan Sprague, because I forgot to mention that connection. And Ryan's podcast is fantastic. For those of you listening, it's S-P-R-A-G-U-E. 
Uh, and he's been on my podcast one or two times as well. And he's a very conscious young man. Until I actually listened to your podcast, I too had only gotten pieces of the Timothy Leary story. I had read quite a, because I've read pretty much everything Houston Smith's published and many, many videos. So I'm very steeped in Houston Smith's position on all this. And I've read a lot of Aldous Huxley. I read the perennial philosophy. I've read tons of Huxley. There's still a lot about the Timothy Leary story that I think is lost due to a number of factors. One being so much information published about him that is controversial, some of it not very accurate, a lot of it personal biases. So I think this book that you've got put out on Timothy Leary is an important one. And we'll talk more about that whole story as we get going. But I think because he reached such almost like hero status in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, and still for some even today, but because of the clouded uh, message of Timothy Leary, I think Ramdas uh, did his best to kind of clarify the difference between him and Leary in various locations. But it sort of, this sort of uh, confusion still exists today. And, and, and I think actually in many ways it's gotten worse because of the legalization of some of these drugs and all the research. So it's actually creating a, I think it's creating a, a risk of a culture that is going to be using these drugs like they use drugs from psychologists to deal with anxiety and all sorts of stuff. So we, we have a lot to talk about. I don't mean to jump ahead, but I really am just pointing out that there's a lot of things that you bring clarity to that nobody else brings clarity to at all. And, and having uh, spent time reading your Entheogens and the Future of Religion, that leads into my next question. I have, I have quite a library, which I can't wait to show you in person one day. But I have a, a very comprehensive section on psychedelics. And one of the books I have is a very scholarly book. It's about the size of an encyclopedia. And it's on the history of psychedelics in worldwide religion. And it shows that they've been used in religion for, for as long as religion's been around. Yet, oddly, most so-called religious people are very opposed to any use of psychedelic medicines and flat out deny their use within religion, my mother included. Can you share some history and your thoughts in regard to the use of psychedelics and religion as a whole? Gosh, you know, Paul, I, I can't wait to just hang out with you in your in your house <laughs> and accept your invitation to come there. And um, this way I won't have to write my book. We can just sit down and... Uh, <laughs> I think you should write it anyhow. I might be able to give you a few references. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, we just we'll sit down. We'll have a couple of um, balloons there and um, turn on a tape recorder. And because your your questions and your observations are are so right on and and um, connect with me, you know what you said first of all about Timothy Leary. That's a very very important thread in understanding the past and the future. This linkage between these two renaissances. And I spent a lot, I, I've gone back and forth and really, you know, in, near the end, really connected with Tim and came to appreciate and honor and love him so much for his, uh, for what he tried to do. And, and I'm going to get back to that. And then, and then you mentioned Houston Smith, who was really one of my most beloved and respected teachers who I connected very deeply with. And my, over the years, my view of psychedelics is really almost entirely in accord with him. I, I miss him every day. He was my, he was a, 
he would always receive my calls. I could always go up to see him whenever I had a question or wanted to hang out. I was so deeply honored that my book, Entheogens and the Future of Religion, he said was the best book on psychedelics and religion that has yet appeared. He was asked to I do agree. his, yeah, he, he did a book um, near the end of his life, an edited um, collection of all of his writings. I actually persuaded him to do that. So that, <clears throat> and now to your question, yes, it's, it's um, let's, let's look at this because it's true what you say. Any historian of religion worth their degree will agree that when you look at the, at the origin of all of the major world religions and, and virtually all of the traditional shamanistic practices of the world and their cosmologies, their myth of origin, you will find a sacred plant. There's something very mysterious going on with a plant. Whether we're talking about the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, you know, the Old Testament, of course, obviously there is the, the very um, interesting story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that are given, that are lured or convinced into eating a plant that gives them a vision. And that's really what starts the whole thing going. That's one set. As I said earlier, the religions of India all kind of stem from this Vedic period. And that was based on this. Um, the oldest thing was this mysterious plant drink, God, Soma. Another topic that I don't really dove into, the ancient Greek Eleusinian mysteries, which are considered, um, according to Houston Smith and many other people, one of the most important religious celebrations of all time, a ceremony that went on for at the very least 1,500 years of classical antiquity, where initiates would go to a place outside of Athens and partake of a, a drink after a seven-day ceremony of initiation and practices, and they would have a drink that produced a vision. And this was so uh, profound that um, first of all, they weren't allowed to talk about it. It was so sacred. You wouldn't, you could not transgress or pry into or utter. These are words from the Homeric hymn, this experience that you had. And that was, and that maintained itself for, as I said, this very long period. Even further back in time, the oldest writings in Western, in the world's religious history, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh talks about a plant or some, uh, the herb of immortality. And so it's all over the place. It's very, it's very clear. Now there are various interpretations that we can offer to this appearance of the magic plant, but the but the uh, the fact that the, there are these very very these psychoactive plants, whether they're mushrooms or vines or whatever they are, cannabis goes way 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 back. These this is you know religion. The word religion, right? It means to reconnect means to reconnect with the sacred. And so this is, you know, human, human beings have evolved out of this primordial, and, here, and then to overcome our separateness, we reconnect with this mystery, and that's our, that's our religion. And so this is, this is clear to historians of religion. This is one of the oldest forms of the religious experience. And now to your question, why are so many religious so-called religious teachers opposed to psychedelics. You know, when psychedelics first became popular in the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of people that said, oh, no, you know, don't stay away. The drugs are bad and so on. So it's complicated. 
because um, I, I think anyway that there are there are at least two basic reasons for this. One is that it's because religious orthodoxies, the priests and the hierophants in the Catholic Church, the, the priest is the one that has access to the sacred. If everybody had access to the sacred, the priest is kind of out of a job, you know, like who needs a church anymore? <laughs> yeah. If individuals can explore the, the sacred themselves without that structure, that institution. So there's a, there's a kind of negative, sort of power-hungry reason for that. We can talk about that more. But the other reason for um, the prohibitions maybe in in some cases is an, is a noble one because you know psychedelic drugs are not for everyone they they are they are as advantageous to a spiritual life as as destructive to it and so you know this is something that Houston Smith really gets into more and more is that you know mysticism is not democratic it's not for everybody it's a secret teaching, and so there, there, even in the even in the traditions now, that like the shamanic cultures, you know, with ayahuasca, these are they're they're sacred. They're not part of the ordinary world. They're not profane. They're not commodified. They're not advertised. They're secret. They're they're special, and in this. This modern renaissance that we see, maybe we'll return to this, this modern renaissance that we see here, I call it the enterprise. There is such a tremendous commercializing and commodifying and hyping of what these drugs are that they are, you know, maybe I'll overstate this to make a point. They're much more harmful. They're, they're being used as weapons, really, is what's going on. And, we're, you know, we're going to, I hope, get into some of the the CIA social engineering aspects of what's going on today. But um, I hope that begins to answer your question. Whatever we don't get into today, we'll get into with a follow-up podcast. So, you know, this is to me deadly important because, you know, I don't think there's anybody that could agree with you more having had a lot of experience with plant medicines and what happens to people that abuse them or get misled or not handled properly that you know the power to bring god into your consciousness is also the power to bring the opposite into your life and you know i i don't think a lot of people are conscious of what you cover so well in, in theogens in the future of religion and your chapter with jack cornfield especially in in it here's the problem i mean i'm skipping ahead but i'll do it just for a second here that one of the challenges that we face as human beings, Robert, and I know you know this, is people don't want to do the work to really do anything that requires development and the work of mastery. Everybody wants to take a magic pill, a shortcut, fake it till you make it. And so whenever you start hearing things going around, like you can experience God or you can, you know, whatever the story is, people come running like crazy, just like they do with biohacking and this pill will will make you thin and beautiful and this pill will make you live forever. This vaccine will save you from a virus that nobody's ever seen. You know, it's it's the same predicament of humanity. And from a perspective of a man who studied anatomy and physiology and all the related sciences, I have empathy for the fact that, you know, just think if you and I were out in the woods 
not only now, but thousands of years ago, and we were thirsty and needed to find water, we wouldn't just walk through the bush and make our own trail. If we could see there was trails that were built by deer and animals, we would suspect, well, they know where they're going. They live here. We will follow with these trails and hope we end up where there's some water. So it's actually innate in us because the body operates on what's called the men's theory, minimal electrical neuromuscular stimulation, which said very simply means we always take the path of least resistance because it's a survival mechanism inside of how we're wired. So it's actually built into our nervous system to look for shortcuts because there's a survival strategy to it. But when you don't have enough conscious discernment to know when the shortcut actually might be <laughs> the end, then you fall prey to a lot of these things, which is so why I wanted to talk to you about all this. Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've heard me talk about the many injuries I've had doing many wild things from racing motocross to riding in the rodeo and crashing stock cars and being a paratrooper. And one of the things that's really helped me a lot to make my joints more comfortable and heal is collagen. And Bioptimizers has just come out with an amazing new product called Collagenius that actually goes way beyond anything we can get in the standard collagen supplementation classification. And I've got Mark Effinger here, who's the chief product officer at Bioptimizers, to tell us about their new product, which I'm very excited about. Mark. Tell us what's unique about Collagenius. Well, thanks, Paul. Um, I, and I really appreciate this, by the way. So Collagenius came about um, as an accident of my lab assistant trying to compartmentalize different mushroom extracts from one to one all the way to 100 to one. These are all medicinal mushrooms and they're all organic. And we were finding this really interesting overtone of chocolate and cacao coming out of these mushroom extracts. And the more extraction we got, the further we got down the extraction lane, the higher the, the chocolate notes would come out of these. So me being a, a, a more of a scientist, I was trying to cap these things. She being more of an incredible chef decided that what if we could flavor these up and us both being over 50 and me having some of the same experiences you have in breaking bones and tearing muscles and tendons <laughs> decided, wouldn't it be great if we could we could take the, the benefits of collagen and the restorative and, and tissue repair and combine it with these micronutrients that are available in mushrooms that activate the collagen and make it bioavailable. So we started blending those things up. And as a result, we came up with this nootropic, this brain enhancing mushroom stack that is also a super collagen enhancer. And those together became Collagenius. That's so amazing. I just love the exploration. I love the marriage of your wife's chef skills and your science skills. And that's just the magic of a healthy relationship. And that really describes my relationship with Bioptimizers, just magical because I love all their products. I, I've always had a great relationship with Wade and I love it because everything Bioptimizers sells actually works. What a concept. So, hey, you guys get your Collagenius at N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A, that's newtopia.com forward slash living number four and the letter D. That's newtopia.com forward slash living 4D and get your discount with Paul 10 on checkout. I can't wait to hear what you think about Collagenius. Enjoy. There's a couple of things that came to my mind while you were sharing. Um, one, surely you know who St. Hildegard of Bingen was, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Well, having looked, I mean, I've studied her quite extensively. I've read her books and I've watched multiple documentaries on her. For those of you interested on Amazon, there's at least three good documentaries. St. Hildegard of Bingen, who was considered to be the first women's liber. And she was a very, very powerful woman on many levels. But in her artwork, you see mushrooms all over the place. And I'm like looking at this going, okay, I know she's not just putting standard mushrooms in there because unless they were psychedelic mushrooms, why would they be in her art all the time? I've never found anything specifically stating that she used psychedelic mushrooms, but I have had read books uh, and seen interviews where people are suggesting that that's why they're in her artwork. Then you've got in the Bible, M-A-N-N-A in translations is mushroom, right? So it's very interesting because I saw an interview with a famous Christian preacher, Joel somebody, but anyhow, he, he, he's been talked to about all sorts of shit, but somebody cornered him one day, caught it on video, which I thought was funny. And they said uh, to him, Joel, what is the actual translation of the word mana in the Bible? And he smiled and had this little impish look on his face. He said, well, mushroom. And they turned and walked away real quick. <laughs> and so that cracked me up. Then within yoga, there's, there's an interesting kind of polarity within the whole yogic community. I'm talking about in India, where there's people that are very against the yogis that use marijuana, hashish, and things like that, and say that's fake yoga. But then there's also those that have used it and have achieved enlightenment and have every sign of ritual and all the things that go with true religious practice so that we, we see that going on. And then with religion, we, we, we have Carl Jung, who wrote extensively about the issue of religion being the religious experience being completely extracted from the church. And that the ceremonies were dry and dead, and, and his father was a preacher, and and his dad would not confront the issues of religion with him that he brought up, and and you know Jung even said that the function of organized religion is to protect you from a direct experience of God. So that goes right back to your concerns. You know, the truth of the matter is many people could not handle and would not be ready for a direct experience with God. And as a man that's had many of them, I can tell you a direct experience with God is complete and utter death to the ego, which will get into some of the things we're going to talk about later. So anyhow, those are just a few of the thoughts that rose up in my mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's fascinating to me. But, you know, one, one thing I'm feeling now is that uh, as I, I've been doing more podcasts is that these are big subjects. Podcasts, we try to get in, you know, stuff in, in two hours. But what, what I, you know, I've, I've taught at the university on a few different occasions. What, what we're really sketching out is what should be a long course of, you know, a lot of reading. There are a lot, there are a lot of aspects to this. And so I have to kind of sort of rein in my, um, the desire to say it all in one time and just like take a deep breath. And as part of, as you said, in our culture, you know, our tendency to like just grab and get things. But there's a, this is a, a field and knowledge that really takes some seasoning and understanding. Like, you know, even just words we're using like religion. I offered one definition. Religion as a, as a verb is a process of reconnection. 
And I've said, use this, I've said the history of religion a couple of times, but you know, the history of religion is a very big subject and um, it, it contains the whole of humanity from the very best offerings of the human experience, you know, union with God and these images of human fulfillment and metaphysical systems that really can guide and inform our life to our highest aspirations, yoga and meditation and the stories, the teaching stories. I mean, it's so rich. But also in the history of religion is um, a history of subjugation and how and how religious ideas can be used to capture people and subjugate them and be a, be an excuse for the very worst of our human inclinations of conquest and genocide and con- slavery and all of these things. And that really has, we have to really look at that. And so psychedelic drugs are really, I, the way I see it, and I say this a lot, they're a microcosm of this history of religion, because again, the very best, highest attainments and ideals of the human experience can be accessed and approached in a systematic way and learned and embodied through the right use of entheogens. But, and this is, you know, I say this and I know a lot of people have trouble because they don't know as much as I do, but for the most part, the propagation of these drugs in our contemporary culture from the very beginning of their propagation, from Gordon Wasson on, they've been used, they were introduced in the form of a CIA social engineering mind control project. They were, they were introduced to debilitate modern society and modern youth, to distract them from the political developments of the oligarchs. And that's a big statement. And, you know, maybe we'll drill into that, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it. And this, this brings circles us back to Timothy Leary because you see, Tim was recruited by that operation, MK Ultra, to propagate psych. He was a very charismatic, handsome, you know, dashing Harvard guy. He was perfect. He was cast to be a Pied Piper to get people onto these drugs to distract them from the anti-war movement, to, to, as you alluded to earlier, to kind of circumvent their developmental process, to cut them off at the knees. And kind of at the beginning of this role that Timothy was assigned to, he realized this, that he was being used for a political agenda that he found utterly abhorrent. He loved the drugs. He loved being famous. He loved the being entertaining. But he didn't like the political agenda. So he tried to find a way to put his own spin on the use of these psychedelic drugs and, and, and transform them from agents of the oligarchs of the CIA, of the social engineers, British intelligence, Tavistock. That's really where the roots of this are, even further back into Freemasonry and secret societies there. He found a way to apply Another set of memes, a new set of setting, a new set and setting. So Tim didn't just say, like Ken Kesey, another CIA operative, just take drugs and freak out, you know, put them, give them to people, pour it in the punch and just dance in the freak show that was Kesey's ordeal. Tim said, question authority and think for yourself. He said, turn on, tune in and drop out of that 
institutionally created social reality of the military-industrial complex and start your own religion. When you look at this new propagation of psychedelic drugs that's going on now, of which Michael Pollan, who's a hired gun of this new MKUltra project, Michael Pollan never misses a chance in his best-selling book to take a shit on Leary, how Leary ruined it. How many times have you seen that in the in the flood of articles about psychedelic drugs that Timothy Leary ruined it for everyone? Well, he didn't ruin it for for everyone. He ruined it for the insta. He 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 set the psyop back. He said he even said the most important thing that I ever did was wrestle the drugs away from the CIA and give them to the people. He knew he was taking. He and Frank Barron, that he knew he was taking a risk. But he, but he thought that it had to be done, and that's a complicated subject. But that's a, that's some opening subject. Well, right it's, there. it's this is one of the key reasons I wanted to talk to you because you're the only person I know walking the planet that has the whole story intact, not only as a scholar but from personal experience with these people. And one of the th- comments that I would add to that is that it's almost like I'm going to use metaphor God put Timothy Leary in the presence of Ramdas to balance the equation of those relationships. Houston Smith you could put in there as well, but you you can see it you know in in the days of Leary and Ramdas and their trips uh, Ramdas going to India and Krishna Das in that group there's Enough of Ramdas's influence and in directing people back into a truly spiritual relationship that's closely tied with Leary. It's almost like you've got the other side of the coin to kind of balance the equation out. Because I, I not only looked into Leary a lot, but I've studied Ramdas a lot and read probably all of his books and found him to be a very grounding force in my life and in the life of other people. So I think it's amazing how when you actually step back and widen the view, you see how these very key people were coupled together, but were almost like crack, uh, fixing up the, the, the imbalances that were being created along the way. In other words, if you took Ramdas and, and Houston Smith out of that equation, it could have been a, a much more nuclear explosion with a lot more problems attached to it, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it is fascinating. Who's ever up there in central casting to uh, put these guys in their role really had a had a great sense of humor and um, and creativity. You know, I knew I knew Tim very very well since uh, 1981 when I met him until um, you know I was with him just a few days before he died. And as I said, my relationship went through. At first, I was I sort of bought the first the narrative that he blew it. You know, I entered into the subject like, wow, we have to get, we have to start doing research with these drugs again. And I went to the very best universities and graduate school to do the kind of work that was truncated at Harvard. And everybody said, oh, you know, Leary made such a mess of it by turning it into a political circus that um, the drugs were banned. And I thought, and then I'd met him and he was, you know, kind of a showman. And I just thought, yeah, it's that sort of publicity and, and, uh, we didn't, we didn't need to be controversial. They should be secret and used within a religious model, not a, not a political model. And then after being in that field for a while and realizing other things, I, I came back to Tim and I realized the method of his madness. And I realized that the genius and complexity of his personality and the, 
and the conflict that he was in by, as I said, realizing he was being used for political agenda. And then I also got to know Ramdas during that period, but but in and I don't want to say anything unkind, but I want to at least you know have an opportunity to be honest with my own observations. And Richard Alpert, it's amazing to me that you know these two guys. First of all, they were they were together at Harvard only for a couple of years, like three year period, and then they were you know like the legend is that they were fired from Harvard for doing these controversial experiments. And then Tim began, continued in his political stuff and Richard Alpert embarked on a spiritual life. And he then wrote a best-selling book and almost, you know, within a few years from their firing at Harvard, he was, he was considered a great spiritual teacher. He was, his character was really created out of, <laughs> you know, like, for, first of all, Tim and Dick were left Harvard for completely different reasons. So just to tell the story a little bit more honestly with some more details that conflict with the common narrative. First of all, it wasn't Richard Alpert didn't start the psilocybin project at Harvard with Timothy Leary. That was Frank Barron. Frank Barron and Timothy Leary started the project. And it was in, you know, two years into the project where Tim began to realize it was CIA funded and he wasn't going to go for it. Frank had also learned that and didn't, Frank had, was more career conscious. He had a family and he left and he went back to Berkeley where he remained as a research psychologist kind of outside of this fray. And when Frank left, that's when, that's when Richard Alpert was selected by Tim and he wasn't, he was selected because Tim needed a prop. Alpert was a very wealthy guy from a very, very wealthy family. He had his own airplane. He had a Mercedes, he had a sports car and he was a, he was a playboy and he was, he just, you know, he kind of, he was kind of ushered into Harvard because of very powerful family connections. And he was just, you know, he was, he was a kind of troubled and very neurotic and very obedient guy. And the reason that he was fired from Harvard wasn't because of anything particularly noble or courageous or academic freedom or anything like that. He was fired from Harvard because he was having sex and get, doing, giving drugs to undergraduate students. Now, look, mm. I've been at university, university faculty. I'm also a father. And I think it's, I think it's really wrong for professors in the university system to have sex with their students. That's just that, you know, you're, you're a teacher. It's not, so he was, ha he was like fucking around with his students, giving them psilocybin and fucking around with his students and lying to the Harvard administration about it. That guy deserved to be fired. Wasn't anything noble about his dismissal from Harvard. Yeah. Tim's was, Tim's was completely different. Tim left Harvard. Tim, Tim quit really is what happened. And Tim, the official reason for Tim's firing is that he stopped showing up for classes. He saw the writing on the wall, was informed that his, that his research was funded by the CIA. He didn't want anything to do with it. He saw another way to go. And so he left and Harvard then fired him. It's like, you can't, you know, you can't quit. You're fired. That kind of irony. Tim and, Tim and Dick Alpert had almost nothing to do with each other for the next 25 or so years. There were some very personal things I don't really need to get into now, but I'm, I'm just talking about the mythologizing, the creation of Dick Alpert 
as a somehow he becomes a spiritual teacher. You know, as yeah, we talked it's very about earlier, important though. As we talked about earlier in this podcast, um, you know, the spiritual path is not something that you just like take a drug or put on a fancy costume and wear a hat with tassels and you're a spiritual teacher. Unfortunately, that is sort of par for the course these days. But, but you know, traditionally, you know, a spiritual teacher is one who has embarked upon a, you know, a fairly rigorous discipline of, of you know, exercising their will and certain conduct and, and behaviors and discipline and yoga and all of those things. Dick Alpert didn't do any of those things. You know, he, he went off to India because he was, because Allen Ginsberg went off to India. He was traveling around India. He fell in love with this very handsome guy and followed him around. And this, this guy, Bhagamandas, whose name is really Michael Riggs, took him to meet Ninkaroli Baba. Now, you know, again, I'm going to say things that people are going to go, you know, they're going to criticize me or whatever. But from my sources, and I, I know a lot of these people, Ninkaroli Baba is also not like, He's one, you know, the Indian mystical tradition and yoga industry is full of charlatans and people that hang out their shutters. And, you know, it's like the way ayahuasca is now in Peru. You know, 20 years ago, you hunt around for ayahuasca. Now you go to Lima and they got signs in the airport that says ayahuasca. You know, that's the way yoga is in India. So Neem Karoli, Ramdas's, you know, guru, he was kind of well known among people that, you know, he's a kind of pedophile and like a fake guy and, you know, had these, he talked a good game, but there was nothing, no real, wasn't really a spiritual, by my, and I can be a little, whatever. Um, but, but nonetheless, Ramdas falls for him. They play tricks on him. Ramdas, who's very creative and gullible and good with words, produces this book, Be Here Now, which is, again, a book of sayings and cliches. It's like a 12th grader could have done it, you know, patch together this and this and this. And somehow this gets advertised as like the new great spiritual teacher that he is. And it's interesting here because um, they are such different characters. Tim and Ramdas, were so, they came back together near the end of their life. When Tim was dying, they had a very, very serious clash between them. Something really unfortunate happened between Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary's son. We'll just leave it at that. That really pissed Tim off, everybody off. And they, they came back. Tim was just in the end of his life, really forgiving and open and positive. And Ramdas came back in to sort of revitalize his image and Tim and the connection. And, but they were so very different. And here's the difference the difference has to do with where is your authority? Do you put your authority outside of yourself, in the institutions, in the professors, in the gurus, or do you put your authority inside yourself? Tim was a very radical, anti-authoritarian individualist, a New England-born, you know, American patriot, anti-authoritarian. Work out who you are. To him, the word guru meant, gee, you are you. <laughs> you know, he was yeah. so he was so opposed to this. It was the thing, it was one of the things that he regretted the most about his about his times that he with his popularizing psychedelics is that he opened the door for all these phony gurus to come in and people like, you know, paying devotion to these charlatans. And there are more charlatans than there are real teachers. Come on. It's just that's like oh, it is with today's I 
today's ayahuasca culture. And, uh, and Ramdas is a kind of classic example of that. He was at Harvard. And, you can, and one of the things that I love about Richard is um, his honesty, because I'm not, and I've talked with him at length about this. I'm not saying anything here now to you and all of our listeners that I haven't talked about with him. And in my, that Leary book, I had a very long interview with him. We sat down and we smoked joints and we talked about all this stuff. For Ramdas, it was all, the authority was, the psych, the psychology, the Harvard faculty, who was like, whoa, they were the ones. And then Tim was the authority. And then Neem Karoli was the authority. And then after he left India, he got tricked by some woman, you know, mystic who turned out to be a charlatan. He was always looking outside of himself for the authority. And he just, you know, he was given a role and he played it with, a, with, with this, you know, it wasn't really until the end of his life, my again, my opinion, this is our conversation, uh, when he had his stroke, that it kind of gave him a sort of humility and awakening and gentleness. And um, that was that was the, that was a whole nother part of his life. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that he wasn't like really beautiful, empathic with people that came to him and his service with death and dying. He did a lot of really fine, sweet, wonderful things. But this creation of him as some sort of spiritual teacher, I think, is like, what is going on here? Here's an interesting paradox, though. I mean, I deeply appreciate knowing this from you, but I also know that sometimes out of the blackness of the mud grows a lotus. And I can only say from my personal experience that I never met Ram Das. One of my clients and best friends, Jason Picard, who I've got a couple of great podcasts with, did work with him directly. Ram Das had a positive effect on me. I, th- I think that somehow he, in a way, healed some of his own karma by putting the parts of himself that were good for the public in the public sphere through videos and interviews and, and various things. And so, you know, if I would have heard this from you 20 years ago, I probably would have had a really hard time believing you. I would have thought there's no fucking way that this could be true about him. But now that I'm an older, wiser, more mature man, and I'm sitting with a wise, older, mature man who I know doesn't have any investment in bullshitting people, I'm at a place in my life where I can digest the truth. You know, and that's one of the things. The truth is really hard pill to swallow on many, many levels. I mean, that's one of the predicaments of humanity, right? People don't really want to know the truth about almost any goddamn thing, which is a fucking problem. I'll just finish my thought with saying, you've just done something else for me because I've made a mistake. And so I'm going to ask great spirit for forgiveness because I've bagged on Timothy Leary many times because tune in, turn on and drop out is something that I've seen so damn many people do with psychedelics, but they use it and understand it. And the mistake that I made is I thought he was saying, drop out, like, just don't get involved in all the bullshit of life, the politics, the issues of the world, go off, have fun, have sex, paint, dance, sing, drop out. So I've personally 
pointed the finger at Timothy Leary for the dropout component. And I say, look, the fucking last thing you want to do right now in the world is be dropping out because that's exactly what they're trying to get you to do on every level from junk food to legalization of drugs to the over prescription of medical drugs and dangerous medical drugs and pain medications. They're numbing the shit out of people so that the whole fucking World Economic Forum and all the shit tied to it can be ushered in. But when you just told me that he was saying drop out of the establishment and I connect all the dots, all of a sudden it's like a big, huge flash goes off in my mind. I'm like, oh my God, I can see that he was really trying to get us to drop out of the establishment. I just wish there would have been more about what do we do? Drop out and do what? Right? So I'm going to ask you, Robert, drop out and do what? Like we're facing serious problems. I mean, if Timothy Leary was alive today and Ramdas was alive today to see the COVID bullshit and everything else going on with the World Economic Forum, I know these two guys would probably be very, very deeply concerned because it's even worse in the long range than, than Vietnam or any of these other Iraq wars or all the things we think. Like when you look at what's really trying to be ushered in here, it's a much more serious problem. It's a third world war against people being fought with very advanced psyops and everything you've just described is still in play in great force. So with those comments and my question, look, you're a smart guy, drop out, but do what now? Yeah, right. These are big, these are big issues, of course. You know, so Tim was, um, Tim was a flawed character and he was, you know, we also got to remember that he was just in his the decade of his mo of most impact in his life it were, were the decade of his forties. That's a young man. You know, he was. You know, we, we, you know, we look like oh, you know, Timothy Leary. But he was a he was a kid. You know, he was suddenly just you know these drugs are thrown at him. He's super smart, but he really is a kid. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm looking at he would have been twenty five years younger than I am now when he was first just turning on. I look at those people as young and inexperienced, and he was brash. And super brilliant, and and um, and and forces like like you. We, we are in a period of time now that's holy shit. It is so intense. What all these things you just mentioned they're throwing at us. Well, you know, back then we just had the Kennedy assassination, and Tim was aware that was you know not Lee Harvey Oswald. And we might have another one. Mm -hmm. I hope not. But well, we've we had might. nine eleven. You know, remember what I said before about religion: the two extremes. Religion is mostly a tool of the orthodoxy to pacify people, as Marx famously opined, the opiate of the masses to distract Christianity. I believe this is another topic we may get into, but Christianity is like that, like, you know, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, just be kind and kind like doves, love your neighbor, your reward is in heaven, don't get involved in political shit. Basically, that's the first message of the first wave of Christianity in the in the Roman Empire it was meant to pacify people. And Ramdas, Ramdas came from a very very wealthy family. He didn't really want to change the structure of society. He wasn't a revolutionary. He kind of liked things the way they were. He just wanted everybody to love everybody else and love him. <laughs> Tim was Tim was completely different. You know, if you look at Tim's like very early. Uh, experiences as a kid you know he was he was betrayed by his father he had a, he had an alcoholic abusive father 
He was expected to inherit a bunch of money, but that turned out to have been depleted by the depression. And he grew up poor and, you know, and like angry about like, what the fuck, you know, we got it. This is unfair. Let's change. Let's, we got to redistribute wealth. This is a mess. He was a social reformer. He was a guy, he was more like a guy like, like Gandhi or Geronimo in the history of religion who wanted to use religious power to change the world. Ramdas didn't really want to change the world. Ramdas just wanted everybody to get along. Mm, big difference. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, observation. I appreciate that. Yeah, very big difference. And, and you know, you really see it um, for our listeners. My friend Gay Dillingham made a really wonderful movie of called Dying to Know that is a dialogue between Tim and Ramdas. When they, when they came back together near the end of Tim's life, and it was um, before Ramdas had his stroke, and he and Tim are just, it's a dialogue between them. Ramdas came down to Tim's house, and they, they sat, and they just had this dialogue, and um, reminiscing, and it's wonderful. But at the very end of the story, where Tim, the last thing that Tim says to Dick is, you know, we are very different. He really wanted to emphasize that. We are very different. Tim was trying to change the world. Now, back to, you know, where where would Tim be today in light of what's happening with these, you know, let's we, we jokingly said this to each other when we met a few weeks ago. Well, you and I are conspiracy theorists, Paul. And I, mm-hmm. I like to just, you know, I like to lead with that. Like, what do you, I know that word has been weaponized. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, there's something wrong with you. But actually, <laughs> that word was invented to be a weapon to distract, to dissuade people, to try to ridicule them for looking behind the official stories of things. And yeah. in my mind, what do you call a person who's not a conspiracy theorist? Someone who's just um, <laughs> a <feminist>. gullible. <laughs> yeah. So, you want to just accept the official version of Lee Harvey Oswald? You want to think that the Vietnam War saved democracy? You want to think 9-11 was performed by these Arabs? No, you have to, you have to be a conspiracy theorist, which means you have to, they're conspiracies, means people breathing together in secret. And there, um, you come up with a theory and you look for evidence and you, so there, there are ridiculous conspiracy theories, sure. Like the one about the 19 Arabs, that didn't make any sense at all. And so, um, but Tim and I used to talk about this, you know, near the end of his life. So Tim, Tim dies in 1995. He's mostly just wanting to have a good time. He really doesn't want to get into the dark stuff. He, he'd made this kind of obvious in his, in, near the end of his life. He just wanted to generate positivity. He didn't want to get into conspiracies. He hated them. He knew they were right, but he just didn't want the darkness. He wanted to be positive. He wanted to be light. He wanted people to be laughing. When you came to his house, there was a big tank of nitrous oxide by the door and everybody would get a balloon. So we were, everybody was mirthful. But, you know, the few times when I tried to get into some of this stuff with him, you know, some, sometimes when it was just he and I, we would talk about stuff like the CIA, but it really, it really broke his heart. And, um, and he didn't really want to go there. You know, he felt like he had given the message, like to not trust authorities, to be aware of how deeply infiltrated the American 
government, the American university, the American psychological association. You know, one, one thing I like to point out to listeners or readers is a very important article that Tim wrote in one of his books called The Intelligence Agents. And it's a chapter called The Federal Bureaucracy about how American psychology in the post-war period was being weaponized by the federal government to use its understanding of the human psyche to advance a totalitarian agenda. That's a, you could, well, again, again, if this was a course, you know, we would spend, um, we would spend a week looking at some of the things that he reveals in that essay. Hi, everybody. I know that you're all aware of the importance of vitamin C. There is a mountain of research on it, but not all C is created equally. I love Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex because it is the real deal, bioavailable, and I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, founder of Paleo Valley, why their Essential C Complex is so unique and something you definitely want for your family and your children. Autumn, tell us about your Essential C Complex. Well, I was shocked to learn as a holistic nutritionist that 90%, over 90% of the vitamin C on the market is derived from genetically modified corn, and then it's processed with highly volatile acids. And so I knew I had to find a better way to get all of the powerful benefits of vitamin C. So what I did was I dove into the research and I found the three most vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet. That's unripe acerola cherry and camu camu and omla berry. And then I just packed them into capsules. And the benefits are amazing because you're not only getting vitamin C, but all of the other wonderful benefits that come from these amazing superfoods. Save 15% by going to paleovalley.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. That's P-A-L-E-O valley.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. No promo code is required. Ramdas, I did try to engage because after I did, um, I did a lot of research into 9-11 once the blinders were taken from my eyes and I realized that this was, um, you know, an inside job by the administration, by the Bush administration, CIA, and I got way into it. I was curious if there was any merit to what Leary had set out to do. Were people who had taken psychedelic drugs more inclined to question authority and think for themselves? Could we notice a difference in the acceptance of the official story in 9-11 by whether or not a person had had strong psychedelic experiences. So I would go around interviewing people. I interviewed all of the leading people in this psychedelic renaissance who were my, my teachers and friends, you know, people like Stan Groff, Albert Hoffman, Alexander Shulgin, Claudio Naranjo, Ralph Metzner, to just see what their perceptions of 9-11 were. And, and with, with just two rather outstanding exceptions, everybody also saw, like me, that it was the official story is complete bullshit. We've been scammed here more than any other time in our history, except for Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, who is a government agent, and Roland Griffiths, the guy who's directing the research at Johns Hopkins. They they said, oh, no, that official, that's that's true. You know, they were like completely. <laughs> they did? Yeah, completely dumb to they, it. The they only, said yeah. nine, they thought 911 was really a terrorist attack? Yeah, Rick Doblin, Rick Doblin says, oh, I'm 99% sure that the government is right about that. Oh my God, Jesus. You don't even want to ask me what I think of that. I can't, I, I will have to use foul language. <laughs> so anyway, there's that. 
And then Ramdas wouldn't engage me. I wrote him a letter. I said I wanted to come uh, talk to you about this and see, because I was going to try to congeal a, a movement, a psychedelic truth movement. Most of my friend, most, well, this was like in, um, oh, it was probably 2006 I was doing this. I wanted to just, you know, these different groups were starting scholars for 9-11 truth, pilots for 9-11 truth. I wanted to start a little thing, psychedelic researchers for 9-11 truth to show that there was a powerful effect of psychedelic drugs on awakening one's um, independence of thought and uh, enable to see through these obvious um, psyops. Now I'm much less impressed with the possibility of that. I'm, I'm really disappointed in what I see in the media-driven psychedelic renaissance that's going on. I see a really profound commercialization and commodification, and people are not really waking up. I haven't, you know, there are so many people that are lining up to become ketamine therapists or, you know, signing up for Rick Doblin's MDMA stuff. And they're, you know, wearing their masks and getting vaccinated and like, ay, 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 what the fuck? Yeah, it's a paradox. You know, I just want to touch on that for a little bit. I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you how many plant medicine ceremonies I've done personally. I mean, I've done, you know, several hundred for professionally run healing ceremonies, but I have used them for my own healing. And, and I actually use them for a lot of deep spiritual investigation for the fact that I, I can do it without them, but I find that they open dimensions and make it much easier for me. And there's a lot of benefits to it. Not that I would recommend others do that, that don't know how to do that. And I have a long history of, you know, 18 years of Tai Chi daily yeah. Um, many other practices, working with a master of Tai Chi, raised in the Paramahansa Yogananda Self-Realization Fellowship, taught to meditate when I was 12, spent the summer with monks when I was 15. So, you know, it was very, very important for me. And I felt that my responsibility as a teacher and the owner of an institute to make sure that I had enough depth without any medicines or, or drugs, if you will, to be able to make an honest comparison between what happens when you're using plant medicines for so-called spiritual awakening or spiritual practice, and how did that differ from my experiences without them? And I made sure that I continued my practice. In fact, I did Tai Chi daily, sometimes twice a day for 18 years, and, and I reached where I had non-dual experiences. And I said, okay, well, from on the structure stages of consciousness, there's, you know, not really, you can't really go much further than a complete non-dual experience. And I had many samadhis in, in just straight up meditation. One the first one I had was at the Yogananda, at the Self-Realization Fellowship uh, grounds in Encinitas. Uh, actually, my first one was when my son, my first son was born. As he was coming out of the birth canal, I, I had a complete and utter union with the whole universe. Yeah, which I know just that blew one. blew my eighteen year old mind right right to God. Yeah, but the the point that I'm that I'm trying to lean toward here is that I have found plant medicines used ceremonially. You know, I'm a pioneer type and, and a, a you know warrior type, so I go progressively deeper and deeper until I completely and utterly annihilate my ego, which is not something I recommend people do. It's extremely scary. And, and there's, I don't even know how I've made it home from some of these ceremonies has been, you know, 
very, very intense experiences where I thought for sure I was dead. But well, I know how you did because because you had spent so much time um, creating a strong and healthy ego with your discipline, exactly, practice, and your physical work and your diet. You know, that's yeah. that's a really important thing that people. There's so much. It's such a trend these days. Like, let's you know the with the 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 five meo like. Oh, to have an beyond your ego. Like, don't go beyond. You need your ego. You're nowhere near letting. Besides that, if you want to really have an ego list, go to sleep. That's when you lose your ego and wake up in the morning and go be your ego and do your things. But I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. You were saying you. Well, I'll tell you, you're, you're hitting on something very important. And I'm going to tell you a story that's true. And it can be verified by our joint friend, Kyle Kingsbury, who's actually probably one of my very best friends alive. Okay. Um, I love that guy. He's one of my all-time best friends. And him and Jason nice. Picard are soul brothers to me. And I have one other soul brother in Canada, Rory Mullen, who's also uh, really done a lot of great work with me. One time in a, before a ceremony with Kyle and a couple of other guys, I said to them, I said, you know, it's very important that you understand you have to have a very strong ego to do deep ceremonial work, or you're going to be obliterated and you might end up become schizophrenic or something else. And I've had seen it happen, not with people I've worked with, but people I've had to help. And Kyle admitted to me sometime later, maybe a couple of years, just in conversation, he said, you know, Paul, do you remember the day you told me and the other guys that you needed to have a really strong ego to use psychedelics and go to the depths that you like to go to and that I like to go to. I said, yes. He said, I'm going to admit to you the first time you said that I thought you were fucking crazy. Yeah. He said, but now that I've had the problems that I've had and, and needed your help, he goes, I completely and utterly understand exactly what you meant. And I said, yes, you have to have a very, very strong ego. Because if you don't, the first thing that's going to happen to you in a deep ceremony is you're going to actually, one, think you're dead. Two, you're going to go into a state of complete and utter shock, fear. And you may do something extremely fucking dangerous that gets you or somebody else killed and not even know you're doing it. And so that, that, there is a tremendous need for a real solid foundation. You know, I, many of my patients are working with me for two plus years before they'll even be offered this kind of medicine work. Even uh, if I think it'll help them in the beginning, I don't, I want to make sure someone knows how to confront their own shadow and their own darkness and the evil that exists within all of us as a byproduct of the nature of God. And until you can learn to manage your own inner story and your own, you know, fodder, Putting drugs in the system is a very bad idea because whatever you, you know, I, I say plant medicines are amplifiers that whatever you, the bigger the dose, the more you turn up the volume on your unconscious mind. And if you've got a bunch of devils in there that you don't know how to deal with, you're just going to put them on steroids and you're still going to be the same weakling that you were in the beginning. And you're just going to put everybody in great risk, including your friends, your family and your future. Yeah. Except you're going to think you're enlightened. Because you had a mystical experience. Yes, that's another problem. Let me say something about this. Because um, I, I talked about Gordon Wasson at the beginning of our conversation, and he was the he was the Wall Street banker who really yeah, I've um, studied him. So you know that very famous article that he wrote in Life Magazine in 1957, which really started the, popularized the mushroom. 
you know, and I, I knew Lawson. I hung out with him. He invited me to live at his house. I was going to, I wish I had done that. But a few years later, I went, I was going to make, a, I got some money to make a documentary film. I hadn't really realized this backstory. And I was going through his archives at Harvard and I found some documents. So listen, look, first of all, that Life magazine article that started the psychedelic movement in the 50s that notified the common, the, the mainstream population of these mushrooms was paid for, the whole, the whole thing, including the publication of it, was paid for by the CIA. That was, that was an MK Ultra operation. That was MK Ultra subproject number 58. So we have to ask ourselves, why would the CIA popularize psychedelic mushrooms to American society? When you look a little fur further back into Wasson's life and the history of his interest in mushrooms, I found this document that was really just really opened my eyes. So the first, the first inclination, the first time that Wasson learned that there was a mushroom that was psychoactive was an article that said in the first paragraph that this is a mushroom that's used by a Siberian sect that causes delirium and debauchery to most of the people who use it. But to a very small number of people, it it grants awakening and healing powers. This is that the would first... be the Amanita muscaris mushroom, wouldn't it? Well, it would be all the psychedelics, I think. This is what we're talking about. So here's Wasson, and he's working for J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan is a fucking Nazi totalitarianism. He wants to just just debilitate the population so he can control all the wealth. And then Wasson is, Wasson is his PR guy. And so here's a guy that knows that these psychedelic mushrooms have a disproportionate effect. For common people, they confuse them. Very small number of people will benefit tremendously. This is basically Houston Smith's approach too, like, whoa, 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 these should be secret substances, not handed about, used very, very carefully. Like you just said, they 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 amplify what your psyche is, what's in your psyche, and so that's a that's a thing right there, and that describes the weaponization of them, why they were deployed in American society in the post war period. It's like throwing, as I said at the beginning, throwing fairy dust in the eyes of the population, so they're just like suddenly they're distracted by whatever visions or energy, and they don't have a, a vessel or vehicle for this. They're just like. Whoa, look at all this. And that's what happened to the anti-war movement. You know, there's a there's a myth that psychedelic drugs woke people up in the 60s and got people to protest the Vietnam War. That's not what happened. The the anti-war protests were underway. The Students for Democratic Society were a very organized group of very smart kids, students from the best universities, anti-war, were going around organizing people, giving talks organizing voters and really creating a substantial anti-war movement up until like 64, 65. And then this whole psychedelic thing happens. The weather underground infiltrates the Students for a Democratic Society, bringing psychedelic drugs and, you know, sexual liberation. And the, and the anti-war movement turns, the mainstream turns against it. They go from like organizing voters to trying to levitate the Pentagon, you know, and stuff like that. And that sort of impractical, disorganized, chaotic. They did the same thing with like our sexuality. 
turning it from something, you know, sacred and profound and unifying to a really kind of, you know, there were things wrong with the patriarchy, don't get me wrong, but the, but the trivialization and um, so-called sexual liberation was another thing that kind of undermined, you know, something that was really the most sacred to us, I, I personally believe, and, and the same thing with the drugs. So that I think that what you're describing is how they, how and why they were deployed as weapons in the '60s and now. Yeah, God, you know, talking to you is like fucking lighting a match to TNT inside of me because it you're touching on all these issues that have been part of my life since I was a child from Vietnam and and the reason I joined the 82nd Airborne Division and the reason I left the military and a lot, which I don't think younger people would really understand these things because they haven't been around long enough to see how all these dramas unfold and the layers of bullshit that gets published as fact and is worse today than ever. There's a couple there's a couple things I want to point out here just because of you know the dialogues as important to me as as any destination. Archetypes. Mm -hmm. You're a student of psychology, you know the power of archetypes. Yes. Isn't it interesting mm -hmm. that document 58 or project 58 of the CIA 58 reduces to 13 13 is the archetype of death in tarot hmm. and isn't that just hmm. an amazing little coincidence right the if you if anyone that really is a student of tarot and I am I'm a practitioner of tarot and I've studied it very very deeply and it's an archetypal system and just to show you how stupid religion can be, the Christians think tarot is the work of the devil, which is another bunch of horse shit that drives me fucking crazy. And when you look at what the archetype of death is, it is death and transformation. It means you've got to die to whatever it is that's keeping you from becoming a whole person, an individuated person, a real contributor to the world, to your family, to your friends, to your society. You've got to let go of that and become an individual become a man or a woman in society and stand up for what is ultimately that which nourishes, feeds, and protects. And so really all plant medicine use when it's sacred is really square in the archetype of death because you, you get to see what it is that you've got to heal, transform, and liberate, and, and then be clear on what it is you're going to become and do about it. The re-entry period is what's so important. So we have this death-rebirth sequence, this type of death-rebirth. Well, who's directing? That's that? the problem today. And that's, again, that is the problem today. And, what, and where it's being directed into, like, look at the new model, the Michael Pollan model of psychedelic, compared to, compared to Tim Leary. It's psychedelics are okay if you use them with a government-appointed psychiatrist or someone that's trained to administer them. And you are become like if the Catholic Church, it's one of the most corrupt organizations in the history of civilization. That was my next comment. <laughs> if they're permitted, if they're permitted to have a, an active Eucharist, my God, that church is going to become even more powerful and demonic if they could use psychedelics in the context of their services. And that's what, to me, that's what's like, you know, or the U.S. Army giving MDMA to soldiers to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Whoa. I mean, yes, death and rebirth um, archetypal practices are very, very profound in healing, but they have to be conducted appropriately or they can be very profoundly 
um, the opposite of healing and get people more entrenched in these institutions. Here's something that I want to put on the table with you, because I, I think you're one of the few people that would understand me here. Going through a course to become a psychedelic therapist. Look, there's a reason Carl Jung made all union analysts do four years or five years of analysis themselves, right? Because he knew very well until you had met the devil inside of yourself and done the work of real healing, you would never understand what the hell you're about to unleash when you open the door of Pandora's box in your patients as a psychologist. And so my point is, I've met plenty of people that have done these various programs, but they still don't have even close to a grip on what's inside Pandora's box and what's going to happen. And what do you do? What do you do when you've got a six foot two, 230 pound rugby player in a state of <laughs> plant medicine ceremony with five and a half grams of mushrooms running around your house, destroying the place, trying to attack everybody, not realizing that everything he's seeing that he thinks outside of him is actually what he's seeing inside of himself and can't tell the difference. I mean, when I look at, at the problems that are being unleashed by the formalization of this without any kind of real classic structure that would be used as Hamilton Southern describes to train a shaman and the work he had to go through and the years of development, I, I'm, I'm really concerned that we're actually unleashing a, a, a dragon in the guise of professional service. And I'm going to give you a perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about. I won't mention the name. I don't think my, my student and patient would care if I mention his name, but just because I can't ask him before I do it, I won't mention his name. And I've had now three cases just like this. This young man was a BMX racer and a high-level motocross racer and had something like 16 bad concussions and was having some serious problems, which I've worked with him. Then the whole ketamine craze got going, and now there's ketamine clinics all over the place. So he I didn't know he was going to do this. If he would ask me first, I would have told him, I don't think it's a good idea. But he found this ketamine clinic in Colorado where the, they've got trained psychologists and ketamine guys with doctors and the whole fucking shit, 30,000 fucking dollars for a series of ketamine journeys. Okay, let me tell you, this is what happens with this highly trained staff. He goes in there. I don't know if it was his second or third. It was a series of of three, four, or five of these ketamine things. He's the last guy in on their schedule for the day. The guy gives him so fucking much ketamine, then a couple of hours later, it's the end of the day, it's like 5.30, the guy walks into him. He's sitting there in this, this chair all by himself. There's nobody around watching him or anything. He's The guy comes, unhooks the drip out of him, says, okay, it's time to leave now. And he, my, my client looks at him and says, are you kidding me? I'm still like deep in this journey. I don't even know if I can walk. And he says, well, I've got to go. And so he had to crawl to the waiting room, call his father. Fortunately, there was a secretary or something there that felt sorry for him and kind of hung around and waited for his dad to come get him. So his father had to drive in, pick him up. And then he went into a complete reliving of his whole PTSD and then had to rehire me to help him. And I've since had two more cases of exactly that kind of bullshit. And I, the first thing I said to him when I 
did my analysis on them. I said, you and your father need to go back and, and not only get your $30,000 back, but let them know that if you, if they don't give you your money back, you're going to take them to court because this is completely, utterly, disgustingly unprofessional what happened. And, and these, these kinds of things as a therapist piss me off. They irritate the shit out of me because I deal with the blow up when I'm not a cheap guy to see. So people don't just come running to my door for help because their butt itches. It's when the bottom falls out, nobody else knows what to do that people come to me. And so I actually have seen, I, I could put 50 cases on the table where so-called shaman and experts have, have blown people's psyche to pieces and left them sitting there with a bunch of broken glass and not knowing what the hell to do it, whether they're professionally trained or not. But my only point is what's missing is if you're going to teach people how to use, if you're going to guide people in psychedelic ceremonies, then you need to go deep enough in to confront everything, the dangers of it, the darkness of yourself. And that is going to take a very skilled person and it's going to take a good couple of years. Part of my training was I worked with a doctor that used plant medicines for a year. And I, in that year, I did about 40 plus ceremonies, basically one a week. And I worked with him and I, I learned a lot because I saw a lot of the dangerous things he was doing. And then I went to many different group ceremonies where you could get invited or you had to be know somebody, you know, that's kind of the secret underground of it. And I saw so much crazy shit going on. And I saw people just going through all sorts of stuff that they really needed to be doing in a, in a private therapy session, scaring the shit out of people in there, vomiting, screaming, shitting, running around, acting like crazy people. And I'm like, this is this what they call a group ceremony? This is absolutely fucking nuts. And so, and I talked about these things with Hamilton Souther, and that's one of the things I'm grateful that Hamilton's put together a place where people can actually go and get proper guidance and learn and do these kinds of things. But I'm only agreeing with you that there's a Pandora's box is being opened up once again. And it's, it's, it's potentially one of the biggest distractions to the real issues of the world. So I'm going to loop back and say, Robert, what do you think people need to do now? Because we are facing a dragon that we've never seen before with technology so advanced. If you think MK Ultra was advanced, add about a trillion dollars worth of technology and research to control people's minds, the use of very advanced energy field generation technologies, very advanced subliminal technologies, and a long, long list of other shit, not to mention disinformation campaigns, propaganda campaigns, and uh, you know all the things that you're aware of. I, I keep telling people, you've got to ground yourself in reality to start with. You, you know, you better learn to water a plant and feed your animals and take care of your body and get yourself straightened out and start paying attention to where food and water is and the things that you have to have to survive because when the fucking electronic jail closes you're you're if you don't have a sense of what is real you're in deep deep trouble and so is everybody in your family i don't know i'm just curious what your response is well, my response would be something very much like that. And it's something that I think about and talk about every day with my, my closest friends. In my own visions in the past, when I was going up taking these plants and having visions, I was uh, sort of alerted to this period of time. So was I. Whether a real, real quickening of these scenarios that you just outlined. You know, for myself, I'm 
I feel like I'm just in my own personal life, kind of on a cusp of, you know, I've been, I've been an activist and an intellectual and a teacher. I've been mostly underground in what I've done because um, the drugs were always illegal. I was involved in underground stuff and I always preferred the secret society approach. I'm, I'm, I'm from Boston. I'm living basically in Boston now, right outside it. I love the spirit of um, revolution. I think it's called for. I'm feeling enlivened to participate in outer. I'm starting to speak out more, but I'm right on the cusp. And I don't know, maybe, maybe the thing to do is really just, I mean, I'm literally right in the middle. I have a place um, here in Southern Vermont, which I'm thinking of setting up to be a retreat center. I'm, I'm the phrase that's been coming to me lately that that people laugh is I'm thinking of creating a sane asylum, <laughs> so people can go. <laughs> I like that. It's very needed. <laughs> I mean, we're, here's how here's how tr- much trouble we're in. I sorry to interject, but I think you'll en- you'll enjoy and agree with this. You know, you're in trouble when common sense is no longer common. I mean, we're in deep fucking trouble. People have lost their common sense. I mean, if you talk about, for example, if you go to most anywhere and talk about the effective use of psychedelics, people will immediately say to you, where's the research on that? Where's the science behind that? I'm like, oh, yeah, but you're the one that took the freaking shot that had no research behind it, no ingredients on the label. You do more fucking research on which toaster oven you're going to buy. And now you've got family members that are injured and dead. And you're worried about the research on this, for Christ's sakes. I mean, the point is, there's common sense. They've, they've obliterated common sense with all this shit. They've obliterated common sense in, in, in a lot of people. Hi, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show. I thought I'd take a minute to sing you a little song. Dr. Quiet, she is yin. Know how she loves to bring energy in. She teaches you how to rest so your energy is always at its best. Hey! And... I want to tell you a little secret. You know how I support Dr. Quiet? I use Organifi Gold, and it does some magic to help you sleep deeper and restore better so you can get up and be a freedom fighter first thing in the morning and all through the day. And I got Drew Canoli, who created the product right here, right now, to tell us why it works so well. Drew, what's so unique about Organifi Gold except the fact that my kids won't stop asking for it? I love this song. Thank you. And I think if we were DJing this, we would do Rishi. Because Rishi, full spectrum, eight to one, beta glucans, knock you out. The queen of mushroom. Rishi is one of the most powerful things we can put in our body, especially at night. Helps restore, revitalize, great for the liver. So while we sleep, not only are we restoring and repairing the cells, but we're detoxing in the most effective way possible. Yes. And it doesn't have to taste bad. In fact, it could be something you crave. Yeah. And that's Organifi Gold. It tastes like Autumn had a baby with a marshmallow. Every time I have it, it just knocks me out. I've literally tracked it with my Whoop, my Aura Ring, yeah. and it adds another hour to an hour and a half of deep sleep. That's great. Ram and deep every single night. You know what's also really cool? Rishi is a wise man. Mm. It's not only the name of a mushroom, but a Rishi is a wise man. Oh, true story. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's absolutely true. I'm not so, pulling your leg. And how much wisdom have you and I gained from night school? Dream a lot time. of wisdom. Yes. And you gain a lot when you can't sleep. You go, what am I doing wrong? And how do I get it fixed up? So, hey, you know, one time when I was visiting you at your house, you made me a Organifi Gold 
as a hot tea, and I'd never realized you could make it hot. It's the best way. And I was like blown away. I'm like, wow, this is incredibly good. It tastes like dessert, mm-hmm. but it, unlike most sweet things, if you take sweet stuff at night, you can't sleep very well, and it jacks you up. But this stuff was just so relaxing and so amazing. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I know you're allergic to coconut, yeah, right? So, But what I like to do, and this is when I'm being bad. You see, there's a much bigger cannoli than the cannoli you see today. I I would eat ice cream and all kinds of comfort food because I'm from Michigan. Uh But one thing that put my cravings in check, I take a little cocoa whip. Yeah. I put it on top of this golden tea. It is the best drink at night you could ever have. It's amazing. I'm intolerant. I'm not allergic. So I did try it. It It just makes me feel stressed. But I found that, you know, if I don't overdo it, I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to have everybody try Organifi Gold because we all need to sleep deep and pay attention to what our soul tells us while we dream so we can work together to mm. make this world a beautiful place for everybody and get our freedom back and get rid of the toxins in the government and other things we need to do. And now, for a limited time, Organifi Gold Pumpkin Spice is back. All the goodness of regular Organifi Gold with the flavors of fall, pumpkin, cinnamon, nutmeg, and allspice. Go to Organifi.com forward slash check 20 and use the code check 20 to get 20% off your order of Organifi Gold Pumpkin Spice. That's Organifi.com forward slash check 20 and the code is CHEK20 to get 20% off your order. Sleep well. My first orientation in my adult life to awakening and health was uh, Theravadan Buddhism, the basic teachings of the Buddha, yes. the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path. You know, right livelihood, right conduct, right thinking, all those, all those things. And I just find that the more I kind of focus on that and take care of my own body, my own com- and and the three jewels, the three jewels being the Buddha, which is the Buddha is this quality of mind and wakefulness, attention, and the Dharma which is just the truth, like just resonate with what really feels true. There's a basic law, there are basic laws of nature. And then the Sangha, your community of friends that are resonating at that same vibration. And just really dial that in right now, because, you know, as, as horrible as what we are witnessing and what we've talked about today, you know, this last couple of decades, and especially in the last four years of this, this, uh, so-called pandemic, you know, it's so very obvious that we are living in the most mind-controlled time in the history of the world with just unbelievably diabolical forms of warfare where they've been able to trick the population into administering the weapon to themselves. And paying for it themselves. And paying for it themselves and no recourse to, I mean, it's just completely insane with what, what is going on. And But we also know from like the dynamics of history and dualism that the um, the worse it gets, kind of the the potential for enlightenment and righteousness they they sort of go together. They do, you know. The, the worse it gets, the better it gets. I, I had an ayahuasca vision like this that was really really something where I saw basically saw the future and that that um, we all wake up. We we all get to wake up into and become an enlightened society. But we, we become an enlightened society at the same moment we become extinct because it was like the worse it gets, the more people wake up. And then the more people wake up, the more this opposite force comes to try to squelch it and the, like this. And so you follow that. It's like 
enlightenment and extinction sort of happen at once. And it was a, it was a crazy, powerful vision. And I see that happening today. I mean, honestly, I feel my own, my own health and my own well-being are at, a, at very high. I feel great. My relationships are all very, very good. My economic situation is very good. That's just extra lucky. But I'm also acutely aware of, of the incredible terror and um, blindness of people. You know, again, it's just that sort of dynamic opposition that makes our life, my life, really exciting right now. And what, what am I going to do? I don't know. Like, I, I do feel called to speak out more. Um, in fact, I want to mention, you know, to your listeners, I know you probably asked me near the end, which we're getting to, like, how do people reach me? So I, ha- I'm, I do spend time on Facebook. I have a conversation, a daily conversation there. And I have a website and I have a Substack page. And I don't really feel like speaking into a vacuum. And if people who are listening to us who want to, you know, draw me out and engage more, I I would invite them to come there. I don't ask for any. Well, on my website, there's an opportunity to pay $25 to get past a paywall, to get into my archives and my my chat. So we've mentioned my books. You don't really have to buy those books. You can just go to the website where I have the best chapters of my own creation on the website. Yes, I, I actually, you, you let me in there and, and it's very thorough. There's a lot in there. I mean, it's not, it's not like $25 for a tiny little uh, collection. There's a lot of deep stuff in there. Yeah. So if I, thank you. And if I, and I have more to download and I'm just kind of waiting for, you know, if people, I, I'm mostly, I'm a very shy and introverted person. I have a circle of people that I'm very close with. I'm, I'm a lot of people say, you know, write this I started writing this book a couple of years ago, and then the fires came to Northern California and burned down my whole house and all my possessions and all my archives and all my books and every single thing I ever owned. And so I've, I've had an opportunity to be completely reborn without my stuff. And I, I'm just very shy. But if I feel people that want to draw me out, please sign up for my Substack. I'm not asking for any money. Just engage me in a dialogue like this. I mean, you and I could sit and talk for hours, Paul, and share and share our insight and our experience, and um, and probably piss off a lot of people and help a lot of people in the process. And if that's our call, if that's our calling, then you know, here I am, and I'm and I'm glad to share. Yeah. We, we we have a lot to talk about. I, I don't have any intention of this being anything close to our last podcast. You know, since the beginning of all this stuff, uh, you know, I've I've been facing this challenge of the responsibility to tell the truth as I see it with the great risk of being shut down and everything that comes with that. And I've had a couple of instances where I was on big and famous podcasts with well-known people and they asked me, what do you think's really going on? And I said to them, do you really want to know the answer to that question? And they said, yes, I do. And then they edited everything I said out of the damn podcast. I'm like, okay, that that's not how you engage reality. Sort of the paradox for me is here I am, I'll be 62 in a couple of weeks. And the last thing I fucking want to do mm. right now is get into another bloody war. I just want to, you know, give my offerings to the world and release my new spirit gym six volume set and and run my spiritual development program which is essential and that's how i'm going to do it just like you you know your sanity project i've got my own sanity project going but it's just stressful for me as a 62 year old man because i you know if, if this was happening when i was in my 40s i'd be fucking 
out there rounding up the troops and saying, we got to get fucking busy here. This is some serious shit. Wake up now. I'd be, you know, as Ken Wilber says, wake up, clean up, grow up and show up because right now it's more necessary than ever. So it's, it's kind of hard for me. I've got little kids. I've got a 14 acre property and animals and plants. It's like, I barely have time to breathe. And I do my very best to put out real honest podcasts where people can really learn and grow. But I, I imagine yeah, you, you probably do. feel a bit like me, like at, at this time in our lives to have to deal with a dragon like this. It's like, oh, really? Fuck another one. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm kind of amazed at that because like I've said a couple of times, I'm 66 years old, but honestly, I don't, I don't feel any different physically than I did when I was 26 years old. I might look a little bit different, but mostly I identify with the part of myself that's timeless. I, I, I joke, I say, okay, well, I'm 66. I finally reached middle age. Yeah. <laughs> when my son, my son was born, like you described your son being born, you know, what a, what a mystical moment that was. And my, my guy looked like a, like a, like, like, you know, little infants when they're first born, they look like they're old men. They're just kind of bald and their face is sort of wrinkled. And he, I said, oh my God, he looks like a 90 year old man. And I quickly did the math. So when he's 90, that means I'll be 123 and I'm, I'm looking to live that long. So I'm, I feel like I'm halfway home. All this stuff that I've done, all my inquiries in psychedelics and religion have felt like they were, I was invited to do that. I was, I was called to do that. I had visions on mushrooms and ayahuasca voices, like saying, telling me all that, that this, there's going to be this renaissance. There's going to be good guys and there's going to be bad guys. You're going to know the difference. You're going to resonate with people at your octave and there's going to be a conversation and it's going to be, it's going to be a whole ride. And one time on these mushrooms, I said, um, who are you? Like, what is, what the fuck is this? And they said, well, what do you mean? You're the one that took the mushrooms. You came to see us. <laughs> And I said, and I said, well, I said, okay, well, then show yourselves to me. I want to see you. And they said, we're not going to show ourselves to you. We want you to remain a human being for a little while longer. Well, that was 35 years ago. I had that trip and it's been, I'm wondering. So anyway, that, that shows me there's some, there's, there are other forces and there are other dimensions that are directing this drama. And I'm just, going to kind of tune into them. I don't really take any substances anymore, not even cannabis, which has been a daily thing for me. I've, it's been like, I think about five weeks, I haven't even had a puff. I'm, I'm interested more in dream work right now. So I, I have been doing a little, I'm starting to apprentice myself to Blue Lotus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you, have you ever gotten? Sure. So that's, that's been extremely interesting. And I want to get into lucid dreaming as a, as a more gradual and controlled way of entering you know, accessing these other dimensions. So in a lot of ways, I'm still a beginner and I'm learning and I'm here and I'm here to participate in whatever way the spirit wants me to. And one of those was bringing up. I, I, just to rephrase so you understand what I'm saying about being tired. I've worked hard my whole life. I've produced a massive amount of education. You know, Penny estimated I've written somewhere between 15 and 25,000 pages of course manuals alone. And I, as a therapist with 40 years experience, this coming January, I'll have been a therapist and, and holistic health practitioner for 40 years. And I, I've seen so much of the same stuff over and over and over again. And so many, it has always boiled down to 
if I had to synthesize all of it down to one thing, it's just a lack of common sense and not paying attention to what's obvious. I mean, your body's always telling you the truth of what you're eating and what you're drinking, and your heart's always telling you the truth of your relationships. And I, for me, it's like, okay, here we go. We're back in therapy again, except now the, you know, the patient's the world and it's the same exact issues that keep popping up and it's it's the same challenges of getting people to participate in their life and the reality of it is is that we're dealing with a global problem and you can't have more agency for any we or all relationship in other words you can't have more agency in relationship with your spouse or your friends or your society or your town or your nation or your culture than you have in your relationship with yourself. And so for me, it's like, okay, the, the work of world transformation begins with the individual. And that's where I've put all my eggs, my whole basket, my whole life is like, you've got to take care of yourself. If you're eating shit food and you're not exercising and you're not breathing properly and you're not sleeping, you're never going to grow up because to face the truth requires strength, it requires discipline, and it requires that you be an adult. Because kids don't know how to tell the difference between the truth and a lie. That's why they're kids. That's why they need to be parented. And so now we've got this condition in the world where parents don't have the energy to parent their own children. So they use social media to parent their kids. And so we've got this whole multiple generations, at least two of them now, that have never been effectively parented. They haven't had to really deal with, you know, the rigors of athletic development and the things that force you back into your body. And, and I, I think, you know, we're, we're facing a quite a unique situation in the world because we need the strength of a tribe of real warriors that would have had to go through an initiation ceremony in a, in a native tribe that would have been eating real food and moving their bodies and being in touch with nature. And it would have been tough for them to deal with what's going on. But now we've got a sea of confused couch potatoes that think exercise is how fast you can push the joystick on your video game, trying to deal with a monster of proportions that they can't even really wrap their head around. And so... Uh, I'm in it, but I say to my my wives, Angie and Penny, almost daily, we have got to educate these kids so well because the shit they're going to see in their lifetime, they're going to see more things happen in the next 20 years than, than I saw in the first 60 years of my life and the radical nature of this. So my dream was to be able to retire, paint, lift rocks do rock sculptures, celebrate that I've given my heart and soul to the world, have a retirement. But I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm being called into to red alert duty and my retirement is going to be working to help wake people up, which is that's what I'm here to do. And, and I've had deep conversations with my soul and said, did I know this coming in? And my soul said, uh, that's exactly why you came back and put on a body. So Quit fucking complaining and get busy. <laughs> no, you're too young to retire, Paul. And I just want to say this. I'm, I'm really honored to connect with you. And I've been blessed in my life with, you know, most of my teachers have been more a kind of cerebral and spiritual, but connecting with you and your work, man, you are a force of nature and you're way <laughs> too young to, re you are way too young to retire. You have, you have a lot of 
give more service to perform here. And I think I do too. And so I'm looking forward to our, our, um, our partnership and seeing what we can do to, to steer this boat. So, yeah, well, I thank you for re-inspiring me. And, and, you know, when I launch my Spirit Gym membership site, I'm going to have Spirit Gym mentors and I definitely want you to be one of them. And I'm going to invite them to, uh, cause I'm going to have a weekly presentation, kind of like a sermon in a church, but not a church, but something out of the whole system that I'm teaching. This is something you need to focus on. And then I'm going to do an hour of taking people out of the audience and applying the system that I'm sharing in my six volume set. To, to actually taking people through how to resolve real life challenges. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. That's that in my podcast. And I'm going to have guys like you in there and, 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 and that's going to be a chance for them to cross pollinate. So people can say, okay, now that you've met Robert and he's got this going, you can do that too. I, I just, I think we need all of us that are rational and sane need to get together and invite everybody in any way we can into our networks to pick up what can they get from Zach Bush, what they can get from me, what they can get from you, what they can get from Fit for Service, from Aubrey Marcus, what can they get from Kyle, what can they get from the real farmers and the people that are experts at food, because we, we've got to build this thing from the ground up. Uh, well, Robert, you know, these are very important issues. I want to loop back to uh, one of our heroes together, Houston Smith. And with everything we've said, this would be held in context, and we can both create the context for this. But this goes right back to the issue of religion. I read Houston Smith's paper published first in 1964 titled Do Drugs Have Religious Import? Because this is a very serious interest of my own, as I described by, you know, comparing my non-drug experiences with plant medicines, etc. And Houston Smith really kind of blew the lid off the whole thing. And, you know, I, I know you know what's in the paper, so this is more for the listener. But basically for the listener, what Houston Smith did was he, because he kept confronting this very issue when speaking to, you know, people that were in religious establishments and churches and temples and whatever, with this complete and utter resistance to the use of psychedelics for spiritual experiences and saying that was impossible. So what he did was he went to bishops, preachers, whoever, and and said, okay, ask anybody in your congregation to write down what they had as a truly religious experience. What was the experience that they had? Then he went to people that were in with people like Stanislav Grof and Timothy Leary, others, and asked them to write down what they would call a spiritual experience with uh, psychedelic medicines. And then what he did is he looked at them all and he realized that there was no difference. And so what he did is he typed them all up, took the names off, coded them so nobody could tell which one was from a non-drug religious type situation and a drug-based situation. And he took them to all the people that were the antagonists of the psychedelic use and asked them to say which of these people were the ones that did it through being in churches and temples and, and natural approaches versus the ones that use drugs, and they couldn't tell them apart. Nobody could do it. So he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that you could truly have religious experiences. Are you familiar with the book, The Immortality Key by Brian Marescu? Uh-huh. Before we go there, yeah, let me comment on what you just said about Houston. Yeah, please. About that, about that study and that observation and that paper that was published in, I think you said, 1964. Yes. Right? Just getting, Houston is just getting into this um, 
subject then. Yes. And he was he was drawn over. He was he was on the faculty at MIT at the time teaching philosophy. He was a young man. He was brought over and introduced into the Leary thing and then entered that whole controversy. And he was he was sort of, you know, like I said, Tim kind of used people. He was in, in Houston being, although a young assistant professor, very respected at a very fine institution to validate the religiosity. And Houston got really swept up in that Harvard thing for just a short time. And there were things about it that offended him. So so Houston did that little study. Walter Pankey did a similar one showing that the religious experience, the psychedelics could produce a bona fide religious experience that was indistinguishable from the reports of mystics throughout history or people that had non-drug mystical experiences. Okay, so that point has been made. Psychedelics can create the religious experience. But here's what Houston said much later. And this is a this is a line, it's in my book, Entheogens in the Future of Religion, and it it begins the Jack Cornfield chapter. This is from Houston Smith's 1976 book, Forgotten Truth, I've which read is I it think twice one, or three times. <laughs> It's one of the best books in my library. It's a very powerful book. Very powerful book in which he has the, the, the final chapter is, called, is an appendix called The Psychedelic Evidence. And here's how he begins. The goal, it cannot be stressed too often, is not religious experiences. It is the religious life. And with respect to the latter, psychedelic theophanies can abort a quest as readily as, perhaps more readily, than they further it. So I love that because uh, there's a lot in that. There's a lot in that little, that quotation there from Houston, the acknowledgement of the religious experience, but the difference between a religious experience and the process of living a religious life, and then the, the role of psychedelics in that. Houston, you know, Houston had a handful, if Houston only had a handful of psychedelic experiences in his whole life. Yeah, I think in one book he stated 12. He did 12 journeys. Yeah, some of them really scared the shit out of him. Some of them were very profound. And eventually, as he as they went on, they became less and less in, important to him. And so um, I, just, I just wanted to say that because I'm a little annoyed in a way. So, you know, you, you mentioned my Leary book, and I had... Um, I was over at Houston's house and I did an interview, a long interview with Houston that is in that Leary book where we talked about all that. I read your interview on your website that you forwarded me uh, when I was having a hard time getting in. It was an excellent interview. Yeah. So thank you. And so um, let's see, there's a couple of things I want to say here. The day I was there, an invitation came from the Council on Spiritual Practices to Houston asking him if they could compile a book of just his writings on psychedelics, of which there have been many over his career, and put it into one book. And he told me that he wasn't going to do it because he was afraid of being identified as a psychedelic drug philosopher. And he didn't want that emphasis on his, in his career. Right. That he was already Wise. overcoming he was already overcoming certain prejudices that were leveled on him because Houston, as you know, is a um, a universalist. He was looking. He looked at the whole history of religion 
and sought to identify the common features, what I call the greatest hits. And he didn't do it. He didn't. He didn't do it intellectually. He went and lived and practiced each of the world's major religions for five years. When he may be the only person in the world that's ever done that. Yeah. Well, he did it both intellectually and phenomenologically, which is again. Well, what I'm I just really saying he wasn't a one-sided expert. He actually did it from the ground as well as intellectually. Absolutely. And so he had a he appreciated psychedelics very much. But he also thought that they should be regarded with a secrecy and respect that wasn't what Leary was doing. And so he didn't want to lend his name to that sort of, you know, another one of his little sayings he would say is that the Chinese say, if you know 10 things, say nine. Now you mentioned the immortality key. Yeah. This, this touches a lot of stuff for me, actually. That's is that really what got you triggered? <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay, so um, so in this conversation so far, we've talked about my 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 two books, Entheogens and the Future of Religion, which is a kind of scholarly collection of writings that emphasize the religious significance, ancient and modern religious significance of psychedelic drugs. And then the next book I did was a book on behalf of Timothy Leary to begin to show there are other aspects to him than the common narrative would let you know. There was a more of a richness and a method to his madness. Okay. The third book that I brought into the conversation is a book called The Road to Eleusis, which is a book that was originally published in 1978 by Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD, and Gordon Wasson, and Carl Ruck, who's a classical scholar at Boston University. And The Road to Eleusis is about, we mentioned this at the beginning, it's about the Eleusinian mysteries, which were the longest running practice in classical antiquity for 1500 years, where they took a psychedelic potion to have a vision. And the thing about these mysteries is that everybody in Greece was required to go, women, slaves, children, but you could only go once in your life and you were forbidden upon pain of death, to, to reveal. Talk about it. Yes. This is what the word mystery means, actually. It comes from a Greek root, which means to shut your senses, close your mouth, shut your senses, close your mouth, and experience this, but it's an internal esoteric thing. That's the model. And so I thought it was very important for three reasons to bring this book back. It, it was published in 1978. The psychedelic thing is sort of coming. It sort of fell on deaf ears. It was, and it was really about, it's really about that because the Eleusinian mysteries are kind of the foundation of Western religion and philosophy. All the great minds of ancient Greece, which contributed so much to what became of Western civilization, were initiates of this, of these mysteries and said it was the most important thing in their life. That was all they were able to really say about it. But Plato, Socrates, all the all the great minds and you know influences of classical Greece can be attributed in a very significant way to these visions that these great minds had during their initiation at Eleusis. And I thought that was that was the model that I wanted to put forth. That that um, you know not not the research and medicalization, not Leary's change the world, just a secret solemn, sacred initiation 
It wasn't a very big deal. You couldn't talk about it. You wouldn't commodify it. You couldn't hang out your shingle. You couldn't like call yourself a shaman after going to Peru for two weeks. You know, it was like secret stuff. Like be quiet about it. This is sacred. It's not like, you know, it's like when you meet a woman and you fall in love, you don't go like telling everybody, oh, I'm in love and we fucked and rare. You know, it's, it's sacred. That's what the word sacred means. It means separate, not part of ordinary reality. It's another realm. And so I wanted to put this book out, The Road to Eleusis, to just introduce that model. And um, I got the copyright from the original authors, Albert Hoffman, to discover Velasty was still alive, and Carl Ruck, and these were friends of mine. Wasson had passed away. And I added some new material to the book, some extra chapters from Albert Hoffman and Carl. And I asked Houston if he would write a preface to this new edition as one of the most influential historians and philosophers of religion. And he gave me the same answer as he did to the people on the, he said, I don't, he said, Robert, I don't want to do that because I don't, I think I've already written enough about psychedelics and I don't want to be identified as a drug philosopher. And I was disappointed. And I said, um, okay, well, fine. And then a couple of weeks later, he called me up and he said, you know, I've been thinking about that. And actually I really would like to do it. And so he and I crafted a short little essay that is at the beginning of this new edition of The Road to Eleusis, which is available online. You can buy it from Still in Print. Hi, everybody. Today, I have a very special, practical, free offering for you. I suspect you know that low back injuries are the most common of all orthopedic injuries, regardless of age, profession, or what sport people play. And a huge percentage of low back injuries happen while squatting. Squatting is one of the seven primal pattern movements I identified as essential to our ability to function well in our home, work, recreational, fitness, or sports environments. Most don't realize it, but the squat pattern is one of the most common patterns that lead to low back injuries. We are using the squat pattern when we get in and out of chairs, on and off the toilet, or engage small children. Additionally, to get in and out of a car requires a single-legged squat with a bend and a twist, particularly if you drive a car that's low to the ground, like a sports car, which is a very complex movement for anybody with a weak dysfunctional core or who has an unresolved back injury from the past, which is exceedingly common, even among world-class athletes. I would love to give you the squat assessment I developed for the students of the Czech Academy so you can identify any muscle imbalances, joint restrictions, or technical flaws that include the need for form correction or corrective stretching, joint mobilization, and specific strengthening. Anybody that wants to heal from back pain, avoid unwanted back pain, enhance work readiness and athletic performance, will be well supported by using my free squat assessment checklist. My squat assessment is ideal for any athlete wanting to optimize their performance in the squat. My squat assessment includes three key setup assessments, 11 squat execution assessments, a list of key indicators of muscle imbalances, muscle weakness, or joint restrictions. Additionally, once you've downloaded my squat assessment, you will receive a sequence of follow-up videos that will show you how to use it. These instructional videos are not only highly informative, they are also free. To get your squat assessment form and free instructional videos on how to use it, to its potential, go to chekinstitute.com forward slash squat dash assessment. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash squat 
assessment. I'm sure you'll be amazed at how effective this squat assessment is, even if you don't have back pain, and how much it can help you help others. Enjoy. So now to the immortality key. Brian Murrescue notices that book, The Road to Eleusis, the new edition that I published, and reads Houston's preface that he and I very delicately crafted and gets his idea to write his book, The Immortality Key, and um, produces this book, which has an incredible publicity engine behind it, just like Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And this book becomes a runaway bestseller in almost like this. Again, this is what I call enterprise. There is an industry that is pumping psychedelic drugs. There is absolutely nothing new in Brian's book. We have known, we have known about the role of psychedelic drugs in these ancient mystery cults for a long time. Why now is this book being hyped in this way? Is a very interesting question. I think that we need to look at. I'm also, and I've had this with out with Brian, that I'm a little bit miffed that he would take words from Houston Smith's preface that he and I crafted to emphasize like the secrecy and the underground sacredness of this. He would use those words to hype his book. These mysteries were known and were the best kept secret in history are the first words on the flap of Brian's runaway bestseller. And usually when people do that in in academia, you credit the source. Yeah, otherwise it's called plagiarism. Yeah, there was no, well, plagiarism is a little too strong. That's only if you use a lot. This was really just a line, but it was a very significant line, but no crediting of that original book, The Road to Eleusis, that I that I put a lot of energy into and you know to, to do this. That kind of bugged me a little bit. And then I was um so I, I called him on. I said, hey man, like what's going on here? You, you know, he didn't mention not that I not that my ego, but it's just sort of polite. And that's how academic that's how it works. Because why didn't you do that? And he said, well, you know, actually, Robert, um, you were supposed to be mentioned in, he does mention that he noticed the book. He's told been, we've had several conversations. That's how I said, well, why, why, why was it? He said, well, we'll correct. You were supposed to be in the acknowledgements, but somehow it didn't get in there. He said, I'm kind of sorry about that. And I'm going to correct that. And I don't know if he actually corrected that, but that's one thing I think about the immortality key. The other thing is this. That has to do with what I said before about the locus of authority. So Brian, Brian is like a hardcore Catholic guy. He he buys all that Catholic church shit, which is <laughs> antithetical to Poor guy. Yeah. It, it's the opposite of my approach. So I this is what I think. I think that I was ever since I began to um learn and articulate this more controversial perspective about the MK Ultra and the enterprise and the weaponization of psychedelic drugs for to throw fairy dust in the eyes of the population that I've been marginalized. My work is important and significant, but I've been kind of pushed out and to give me 
credit for that would have given me a little too much credibility as a critic of this enterprise. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that the now Brian's book is about, you know, Christ was using mushrooms and early Christianity was using mushrooms. And now we're going to maybe we're going to revive the church by returning it to its roots. And to me, this is like completely antithetical to what the psychedelic vision that I love. I think that most psychedelic users, you know, we want to be empowered. We don't want to be subservient to institutions. We don't like the direction that American society and government is going. We don't like the church. We want to return to nature. We want to return to our own autonomy and our own spiritual power. But this is a book that's sort of like trying to put it back over here in these institutions. This is just what I think about it. And I just want to say this one more thing, because it, it is interesting now that um, I have recently been there. There's a, a conference. I'm, I'm invited to present at a conference in Greece at the site of the Eleusinian Mysteries in at the end of September. And Brian is going to be at one with Michael Paul. And there's like people that are more in tune with that I'm more in tune with and we're more in tune with this like sacred inner mystery school aspect. At the same time, there are these people that are going to try to build building this whole industry and a different a conflict of two psychedelic movements, I guess. is uh, So I'm interested to meet Brian. But anyway, you brought up the immortality key. What do you want to say about it? What I was bringing up is that the immortality key gives us evidence for the fact that the original Eucharist was something a lot more powerful than gluten and cheap wine. It's hard to really know what the church would have been like back then. So we tend to have this habit of using a word church and contextualizing it as though it's an eternal framework. But you know, if you listen to my podcast, which I know you did, Lucifer, Christ, and Aramon, Steiner makes it very clear that to use the Gospels as they're written in the Bible to develop a relationship with Jesus today is a very big mistake because the context in which Christianity was practiced included what he identifies as Luciferian knowledge, which he ties to pagan wisdom. And he says that the pagan wisdom was very, very alive at that time and the Lucif Luciferic knowledge, which would have included psychedelics for many reasons I won't get into. So the whole structure of what we think of as the church and what the experience of being in the church, you know, around the time of Jesus's life would have been a radically different type of church experience than it is today. In fact, there's piles and piles and piles of writings on the resistance to the, shall we say, industrialization of Christianity within Christianity itself, you know. And so that was the, the connection to the, the immortality key, because I think what the book does show is what a Eucharist really was and, and what was going on and how it was used as part of a, a religious experience. But I think what I want to do as we sort of wrap things up a little bit is talk about something that I think is extremely important, and that is the nature of a legitimate religious experience. Because I think our context for religious experience is utterly linked to our perception and our belief of what God is. And I think what religion has done, at least in, in 
my lifetime and, and since the church, church became um, an industrial institutionalized organization of control is it's turned God into this patriarchal father figure in the sky that has very hard rules and without a long description makes people very, very afraid of God. I mean, you know, most Christians that I've worked with as a therapist are really de deadly afraid of God. In fact, one of the most common things that I've seen, which is really heartbreaking for me, and I've seen it over and over again, is I've seen people with serious neurosis and disease and trauma that ultimately turns out to be self-inflicted. And through my own work with them and analysis, what has come up several times is me investigating, why are you doing this to yourself? Okay, why, for example, would you stay married for 35 years to somebody who's been abusing you and you knew you needed to get a divorce with from the seventh or eighth year of your marriage? And the answer is because if I don't, God will punish me because I made a vow till death do you part. And I say, so, so you, your God wants you to live in hell instead of following your heart. And your God wants you to raise your children in a household where you're completely and utterly disconnected from your husband. There's not a love, not love in the relationship. You're coexisting and you're actually not even living a life of love, which means you are actually succumbing to the idea that God wants to torture you. And so the under thread that I've run into many times is that people have actually come to the conclusion, this is scary and sad, that if I punish myself enough, when I die, God will be more lenient on me sure. and I won't have to go to hell because I've already punished myself, right? Yeah. So the point I'm driving at is that the idea of religion as it is presented through organized religion, and, and, and it's in all of them. It's not just the Western religions. It's in the Eastern religions too. I could write a 2,000 page book on this. I've worked with people from all walks of religion with these problems. So the, the, the problem is, is that people have got an idea of God that is so utterly, completely disconnected from the reality of God that we don't really have a container for what a religious experience is because our idea of God is so contorted, we don't know how to tell what a religious experience is from the belief that God's going to burn you in hell because you masturbate or had sex with somebody on the side or whatever the story might be. And so I think that it's important. I know, you know, I mentioned that when my son was coming out of the birth canal, here I was, I just turned 18 years old. My first son's being born and I'm blown utterly into the universe. I knew damn well that was a religious experience. I, I, I didn't need, I didn't need a Bible or a, a, a pastor or a preacher to tell me that was a religious experience. I had a union with God, religio, to link back, yeah. to unite. I had a yogic experience. I had a Tao experience, right? Mm -hmm. And it affected me to this moment. And so I think one of the diseases of particularly the Abrahamic religions is to separate God from the universe and life and relationships and love and the flowers, the birds, the bees, the flowers and the trees. And the side effect of that 
is that everything has become objectified. You throw Darwin, Darwinism into religion, and now you've got this is all here for us, and we can do what the fuck we want with it. And there you have Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum. But the ultimate reality is there, and, and the Sufis say it best: there is no God but God. I worship everything and everyone. God, by definition, means that for which there is no other. God is source. There is nothing that can possibly exist that isn't God expressing itself. There is nothing here but God, ladies and gentlemen. You're looking at God, and the idea that God is all good is as crazy as anything else. God cannot know itself only by being good. God cannot die and God cannot know itself until it looks into both potentials without which you cannot have consciousness. So the paradox of it is, is God is as invested in the darkness of itself as it is in the light of itself. But love is, is what gives you a compass to realize that you can choose what you want to participate in the experience of as an agent of God consciousness. You can, if you want to be a criminal, God will support you in that. You won't burn in hell for being a criminal any more than you'll burn in hell for being a saint. The reality of it is, is we each have an opportunity which requires that we connect to our heart to decide what it is of God that we want to express and experience. But ultimately, what I'm driving at here is that what, what's missing and why so many people are rushing into this psychedelic third wave is because people are so caught in the flatland of corporate religion and corporate everything and the living a life without any sense of meaning, working just to make money but not really having any sense of fulfillment in their work, that they're desperate for something that's more exciting than cash registers and assembly lines and bank tellers. And so... What I want to kind of finish up with for today, although I could talk to you for a thousand years, is look, for me, when I stack rocks, I'm holding God. I'm breathing God. I'm smelling God. I'm watching God move the trees out my window. My kids are God. You're God. I see so much God in you. You know, it's like I see God being honest with the world when I'm sitting and with you talking to you when I'm reading your book, when I'm reading Jack Cornfield, that's God, right? I'm seeing God leave breadcrumbs all around us to say, here I am, here I am. Hey, have a look, have a look. And so for me, I think what's so sad, and it's a paradox because plant medicines helped me realize that everything that I knew inside of myself was true was actually true. So they gave me a medicine to make me stronger in my convictions, not to blow me out into la-la land and to be a dropout, but to really say it's true. There's a reason I love stacking rocks. There's a reason I love plants and animals. There's a reason I don't like to kill anything if I'm not going to eat it. There's a reason I want to do the work to grow spiritually, to try to love my wives and my children better and, and work through the tough challenges that relationships bring and deal with the challenges of running a business and students and life. And so the, the paradox of it is, is we have all these people desperate for a mystical experience or a numinous experience. We have a church that doesn't deliver anything but a bunch of academic horse shit. And then we've got people that are desperate for 
a deeper sense of love and connection to life, but we've got a world that's turning into a factory, into a factory farm. And so what's important for me is to remind people, look, you're looking at God, you're wearing God, you're breathing God, you're wiping God's ass, you're giving birth to God, you're pissing God, you're eating it, you're drinking it, you're smoking it. And this is God. And to the degree that you understand that and that your life can become a spiritual experience because you are actually helping God realize what it is, then we're back in the game again. But as long as we have to get stoned out of our fucking minds to find God, the problem is, is you could lose your mind to the degree that you don't ever get the point. And if you do get the point, you become like Houston Smith. You say, okay, that's enough. Now that you know the truth, go do it. And so that's, that's what's important for me, right? That's what's important for me. And I just, I think I'll just shut up and, and say, you know, I hope you understand the points I'm making. And I think that's part of the problem is that we, we keep looking for what's right in us and in front of us and thinking that taking another pill or another MDMA ceremony or ketamine ceremony is going to all of a sudden make our problems go away. But this is, we're in the digestive system of God's own experience of itself. And this pain that we have, this is God's pain. This love we have, this is God's love. It is God being born. It is God dying. It is God crying. It is God celebrating. And I think if we just understood that, we can embrace each other and we can embrace nature and know that we are actually very important because we're the only ones that can make the distinction that the reason you don't burn down fucking forests and kill animals and raise them in factory farms is because you're doing that to God. The reason you don't abuse, the reason Jesus said, love thy enemy as thyself, because he's saying that's God over there too. That's what the whole Bhagavad Gita is really about. That's what all religions ultimately about. And I think that's what's fucking missing. Amen, brother. I, I, uh, that is, I love your passion. I think you are so articulate and you've nailed so many points that I, um, express myself over the years. You know, I was, I was very lucky to have a, um, a spontaneous mystical experience of oneness in nature when I was just, um, you know, 10 or 11 years old. And I felt like the, the, the water in the stream was my blood and the wind when I, when I breathed, the trees moved and it was this eerie kind of psychedelic experience of just one with nature. And it was so startling. And I, and I was just sort of surprised that other people didn't have this recognition that there was just some another very mystical dimension to our being, that we were all connected. That's the numinosity of it all. That's, that's what makes you know you're alive. Yeah. So I end up in divinity school, you know, and you just, you've just, you know, given a beautiful, um, you know, kind of prayer for this. And you've summarized a lot of what a lot of mystics and theologians have tried to articulate over the years. In, in my book, Entheogens and the Future of Religion, one of my favorite people, I don't know if you have a chance to read that chapter, but, um, but Brother David Stendelrost, who's a, was, has been a Benedictine contemplative monk for 30 years or so, you know, he writes about, he, he covers some of these same points that you write about, talk about, and have written about. You know, people say the mystical experience is, oh, you know, such a hard thing to really wear. But he says, no, just like, just be still for a minute and feel yourself. 
and realize your connection. Yeah, feel your heartbeat. Yeah, and what I what I say to people, you know, after after I've made um, four or five five trips to Peru in the early part of like from 2003 to 2011, I had a project where I was taking cancer patients down to the down to work with indigenous coranderos and um, mestizo coranderos and uh, ayahuasca and other medicines. And I learned um, a very cool word, an Ashanika word, mariri, which means the spiritual properties of plants. And ayahuasca is very powerful, but all plants have this. And I came back up to the States, and I didn't want to be getting back into ayahuasca, and I became a cannabis farmer and really got into gardening. And so this etymology of religion, as we've said a couple of times in this conversation, to reconnect. And I got into my gardening and I didn't want to talk about politics or 9-11 or anything like that. You come into this garden, you're gardening. And it occurred to me like the religious experience, like the fundamental religious experience, take a mindful breath and realize that when you breathe, especially if you're in nature and you're in a garden, you're breathing, that oxygen that you're inhaling comes from the light of distant stars or the sun interacting with the plant that has breathed your carbon dioxide and produced oxygen that you're breathing. Just that breath, every breath is a reconnection with the cosmos, with, with light that's light years old coming down. Like, just pay attention to that. And, you, and the psychedelics are redundant. And destructive, and and often they can they can awaken you to that. But how many people really know that? And as we said earlier, you know, they think you got to like go through an institution, or or um, you know, you 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 don't. Like God is all around, and the more we realize that, the more the more connected we're going to be, and the more peaceful and the more sustainable our civilization. And that's what um, that's what entheogens can help with. But like Houston is saying. I'm not really sure they do that much unless we can unless we can help change the course of this so-called renaissance and introduce this kind of conversation into these people that have been appointed the Michael Pollins and the Brian Morescu's and really let's look let's start looking at this stuff critically because right now it's just like cheer, you know there's nothing critical about that except leery, you know, like, Ooh, you know, don't be like leery. Don't question authority and think for yourself. Submit to it. Oh, God forbid. And do the thinking for you. Before you're a legitimate therapist, you got to get a credential from one of these government. You got to pay your taxes to those war, those death merchants, you know, and if we're going to spark a revolution and change our course, we have to, we have to really, call our attention to that and what we're actually doing. It appalls me that there are so many psychedelic people, so-called psychedelic people leading this renaissance that are not, where did our anti-war movement go anyway? Have you ever seen anybody complain? Like, well, Biden's asking for another $20 billion to send to Ukraine? Fuck you, I'm not giving you that money. You know, like- No, yeah. It's the, the issue of psychedelics is a razor sharp, double-edged sword. I completely agree I've seen the beauty and I've seen the ugly of it and I've done my very best to warn people. And I think like you do, there's a place for it. 
Hi, everybody. I don't think I have to convince you that the number one killer and the number one source of disease and dysfunction and disarray in people's life is stress. Well, I came across the best stress relief product I've ever used in my life, and I'm not bullshitting you. This stuff works. I've given it to friends. I've tested it regularly. It's absolutely functional, useful, tastes good, highly nutritious, super high quality. It's called de-stress. It's by Ned. In fact, it's so important for me that you understand how and why this works. I've got Adrian here, co-founder of Ned and Formulator, to tell us about this product, which I highly recommend. Yeah, well, Paul, this is this is near and dear to my heart, as I was just uh, telling you offline, which I'm sure I'll share on the podcast here at some point. My own journey towards Ned started with my own burnout, yes. a panic attack I had in front of 75 of my employees and completely completely threw me for a loop. The staggering figures around mental health and anxiety speak for themselves. So many of us, I think ourselves included, are just too familiar with stress, anxiety, and all these cortisol spikes that come with the pressures of the world we live in today. Yes, We've also been so conditioned to too quickly reach for prescription drugs or, or to self-medicate with substances like alcohol, all things that can be addictive and come with a long list of side effects. When in fact, natural solutions like exercise, time in nature, and, and plant-based solutions can be all we need to bring ourselves back into balance. So that's why we got together with our amazing team of formulators to craft the ultimate natural alternative for stress relief. And as you mentioned, we call it the Ned De-Stress Blend. It features organic full-spectrum hemp and organic ashwagandha, which are both sourced through our Farm to Net Alliance that we designed to procure the best botanical ingredients that actually work all while supporting independent, organic, regenerative farmers across America. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Yes. And it also features a lesser known cannabinoid called CBG, rightfully nicknamed the mother of all cannabinoids. So this is, think about CBD and all you might have heard about that. CBG is just levels above. So the result is a cleaner, side effect free solution for finding balance, tranquility, and and really, at the end of the day, what we always talk about is unlocking our innate abilities to thrive. And so many of us live in those prisons of stress. We have it available in both tincture and vegan capsules. So all you have to do is go to helloned.com and use the code CHECK, that's C-H-E-K, to get 15% off your first purchase. Plus, every order is backed by our 60-day stress-free guarantee. So if you don't feel a significant improvement in your stress levels, we'll give you your money back. No questions asked. It works extremely well. And as I learned from Adrian, you can even add it to coffee to smooth out the coffee experience and have a combination of a nice lift without all the buzz, which is a great addition. So give it a try. It's definitely the best de-stress product I've ever used in my life. And you got a great offer and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Enjoy. I have one question before I let you go that's pestering the shit out of me. And I have to ask this because I won't mention his name. Somebody who's been on my podcast multiple times and is an extremely, extremely smart human being has the feeling or orientation or belief that Terrence McKenna was co-opted by the CIA, which I personally doubt. I would like to know what your thoughts are. You know, first of all, I knew Terrence for a very long time. He was a friend of mine. I knew Terrence before he was Terrence. When I was when I organized, <laughs> when I organized these, I met Terrence in um, 1980. 
three. And he was just like this very brainy, geeky sort of guy, super intelligent. I just loved him. You know, I was so impressed with his ability. I flew out from Chicago to meet him at a conference in Santa Barbara. We had a very important and interesting conversation. We didn't get to talk about one of my other great teachers, who was Mircea Iliade, who Terence was a... Oh, I love that. What an amazing guy. I mean, for you to have him as a teacher, you are blessed, dude. I've got so many of his books. I've studied so much of him. It's like, this guy's got a mind like Carl Jung or Rudolf Steiner. He knows something about everything. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that, that was a very important part of my life. And Terence had quoted Iliade in, in his lecture, and I just left Iliade's office to fly to this meeting. And, you know, Terrence and I, so we connected. And then I organized a meeting at Esalen that I was working with Stan Groff and Terrence came. And so here's, here's what I think about this. You know, it's tricky because like I said, I really, I, I love Terrence as a friend. Uh, I supported him. I thought his first really great contribution was writing that book, The Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide. So people could grow that have their own source of mushrooms and not have to go through dealers or money or institutions. I thought that was really good. So so we're having these meetings early on. And one of the things we're talking about is we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the 60s. We're going to like reintroduce psychedelics into the culture, me with a metaphysical religious mystery school model forget the medicalization. Doctors are not really trained to deal with altered states. Let's like shift this. Let's learn from the mistakes of the 60s. Let's not be like Leary and standing on the rooftops telling everybody to take them. Terrence was a very important contributor, participant in these early meetings. Here he is. He's super brilliant. He's got a beautiful, intelligent, grounded wife and family, two beautiful young children. He's got, he's works in the garden. He's, he's so articulate. But then, like within a, just a couple of years, suddenly, he becomes more interested in talking and being the, a psychopomp and a bard and becoming interested in money. And soon there's this very ugly public divorce. And um, he becomes sort of a, you know, a leery character, just like, talking and telling people to, to becoming a Pied Piper, taking, take these five gram heroic doses. And then, you know, you know, sort of very quickly, he develops brain cancer and he dies. And it was, it was really sort of tragic. Uh, it's complicated for me because like I said, I really loved him, offered him my support. He did this great project in Hawaii where he transplanted Hawaii, uh, ayahuasca from South America into Hawaii now grows a lot. I was a, I was a part of that project. I gave him a lot of money for that. And, um, but to me, so the trajectory of his life, grounded family, partnership, kind of brilliant, and then fame seeking, and then like sudden die of brain cancer that he got by just poisoning his brain with putting his cell phone, these one of these primitive cell phones to his head from his place in Hawaii and blasting out all this information that wasn't actually true. You know, like his thing with taking big heroic doses of psilocybin, it wasn't something that he did, honestly. And his brother writes about this and if people that really want to get into, you know, because he's being deified now. He's a, he's a cultural influence. He's a cult leader. You know, he's one, he's, yeah. so, but to your question, like, was he CIA? 
And um, I've looked into this and I had never spoken with him about it. You know, he died in, um, what did he die? Like 1999, I think. There are a couple of curious things. I, I wonder who you're talking about, first of all. And I'll, I'll, I'll get, like to get that information later if you don't want to be public about it. Who's the very smart person that... I, I just want to be respectful. Um, I can tell you in private. Yeah, I mean private. I'm looking because I've, I've, I looked into this myself. You know, the way these psyops work is that they, they go around, and this is what the article that I mentioned that Leary wrote, you know, they have, they, they, they send out these um, psychological tests and that these, the deep state cabal, like looks at the American population when they're kids and they find mm-hmm. kids who are especially gifted and they track them. And they assign them. To- well, they overlook. They overlook me because I was very average. <laughs> this is a thing that they do. They have psychological tests. They're administered to kids in grammar school, and they're they're. Pit- I hated school. <laughs> I still would have. I still hate it. Uh, I hate the idea of it. I say let's. I, I'm into the Socratic approach, right? Go out and learn in the forest. Like go do it instead of talking about it in a fucking classroom all the time. So where Terrence went to college. He he was in a special program at UC Berkeley. That was for, and if someone wants to really get into this, that, that would be one thing to look at. So then another data point in this question, whether he was CIA, is a funny thing about he was busted for smuggling hashish, fed, a federal bust. And that that vanished. That's a leverage point right there. That's a curious thing. But the curious, the, the thing that I, and, you know, Dennis has been a friend of mine too, and he doesn't, you know, he thinks I'm, you know, gone off the deep end because I think that there's something to find out here. Um, and actually, Dennis kind of exposes it for people that really want to get a good look at Terrence. Dennis's book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, have you seen that book? Yeah, yeah. He was actually promoting it at a, at a Paleo FX conference. We were both in the... Uh author's signing thing where they can come get the books. And we were side by side and he gave me a copy of it. It's worth reading. It's very honest. And he said, mentioned something in there that caught my eye. When they were in Colombia or Peru on that adventure, the experiment at La Torreira, where they had these very powerful ayahuasca mushroom trips, and that's what kind of launched his career as this new guy. He mentions, Dennis mentions in there that they were assisted by somebody from, it's called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And if you Google the Summer Institute of Linguistics, CIA, you'll find that that's a CIA front organization. And one of its roles is to infiltrate the religions of societies that the CIA wants to sink its tentacles into. And so there's, there's that little thing there. I haven't wanted to bring it up with Dennis. Like, would you, who, like, what kind of help did you get from them? So I don't know if that answers your question, but mostly I, I love Terrence, but I'm, I'm really disappointed in the trajectory of his life because I think it sort of epitomizes the critique that I have about psychedelics, that the religious experience versus the religious life. And did he really have a religious life? Like, What's happened to his kids? Like, I understand one of them has become a junkie, you know. And again, I want to. I also want to say this: that I've had, I've had a couple of psychedelic experiences with Terrence. He administered to me, and 
he gave me a, a, a big um, bottle of ayahuasca that was a very, very powerful, important experience for me. And he, and he administered DMT to me once that was um, a real revelatory breakthrough. So it's mixed. But this is what we... This is what MK Ultra is. It's mixed, you know. I mean, if you, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of blowback, and you know, let's just say that the CIA and these social engineers were using these drugs to, as we've said, throw fairy dust in the population. Some of those, pe- some people woke up and had important yeah. experiences, and 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 you know, the way psyops work, the way disinformationists work, is a lot of what they say is true. You know, yeah. The, you know, the the use of sex in blackmail and, um, you know, that, that's because sex is a really good thing. Love, that, that's a really good thing, but it can be twisted and weaponized. And I, you know, it, it may well be that that was, we can see aspects of that in the, in the life of McKenna. And particularly now, the way he is being like, put on a pedestal, like he's some sort of great philosopher. Well, you know, he wasn't a philosopher wasn't a scientist a lot of the stuff he said was he was irish he had a gift of gab i talked about the the road to eleusis i published with with and i got houston smith to write a preface i had also asked terence to write a piece for that book but when houston said when i told houston that i had a piece from terence that i was going to put in the book houston said well then i'm going to withdraw my piece because i don't want to be in the same book as him i love him wow, he's I- really he really has a gift his intelligence is exceptional, but he was not accurate. He was vituperative. He was a showman. He was a, he was a poet. He was an evocative poet, but he was not a philosopher. He was, you know, kind of a mixed character, kind of like Tim, but at least Tim was, Tim was straightforward about having been recruited by the CIA and breaking. Well, that's, that's, that's the archetype of the fool you're describing in tarot. Tim. The trickster. Tim. Yep. Both. What you're describing about McKenna and and uh, Tim Leary, they're both right square in the. That's the archetype of the fool. I could give you. I could give everyone a three hour lecture on the fool. <laughs> yeah. Again, me having known both of them quite well for you know years, there was a quality of honesty and a more genuine sense of humor in Tim than Terence. Terence was Terence was a little more twisted and tormented, and not really, at least to me, I spent. Kind of more, a lot of time with both of them, but there's something more genuine about Tim. So I hope that helps. Yeah, it does. It helps a lot. And there's two comments I'll close with. One, as I quoted Steiner in my Lucifer Christ Aramon podcast, Steiner made it very, very clear in multiple locations, quarter truths and half truths are much more dangerous than whole truths because whole truths are easy to spot. But quarter truths or half truths get believed, and the next thing you know, they infect the truth. And so, what you're describing with this, I don't know about who this organization was that you track back to a CIA organization. What was this guy doing? You know, so when we look at both Leary and McKenna and, and many others, when when we start dealing in quarter truths and half truths then we get in trouble. For example, you just enlightened me on something. I would have never guessed in my life that Terrence McKenna had not done full-on deep journeys the way he talks about it, because he isn't promoting that full-on. And, you know, I can tell you that I have done very deep journeys that 
multiple times shamanic dose, very carefully scheduled over months and months of training to build up to it. Because for me, I had to, I had to go to into psychosis to see where is it that people get lost each step of the way? What are you going to encounter? I took it upon myself to map that territory out because people were coming to me with such wild and crazy shit going on. And I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist. So I thought, well, the only way I can help these people is if I go down that road and see exactly what demons you run into and where. And, and, and I've got volumes of notes from all my recordings. I've probably got 60 volumes of my recorded journey notes. And so, uh, you know, what I'm saying is, is the danger there is quarter and half truths. And I think we all have to be aware of that. The, the other thing that our conversation today has really done for me, and I hope for all the listeners, is that you, you really have to be very, very careful of, at taking things at face value. Oh, yeah. And you've got to do some homework and you've got to be very careful about, you know, gurus, for lack of a better term, or, you know, I don't know what else you would want to call them. But, you know, it's it's like, when, you know, your comments about Michael Pollan and, 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 and Brian Morescu coming from you with the what we're all lacking is personal experience and the depth of research and the depth of understanding and practice to be able to see these booby traps. You see, you're, you're like the kind of guy, you see, when I was in the military, I was a pathfinder. It was my job to lead the soldiers to make sure if anyone was going to run into the enemy, I did first because I'm a good enough soldier that I might be able to survive and get back. So you don't put your best soldiers in the back. You put them out in front because they're the ones likely to keep you alive. So you're like a pathfinder for the rest of us because you've got the smarts and the wisdom to go out and say, there's a booby trap right there. That, that person right there, they look like they're an emissary of God, but let me tell you what you're not seeing. You know, just like a detective can see things about people that someone else can't because no one else has the training. You know, as an ex-soldier, it's easy for me to tell who's been in the military within three seconds of talking to them or just looking at them the way they walk and carry themselves. I go, that guy was in the military. And I know because I was in there. I've already been through the indoctrination. I had to heal myself from it. In fact, I remember the day my wife said to me, it was three years after I got out of the 82nd Airborne Division. She looked me right in the eyes and she said, Paul, welcome home. It's great to see you. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, you're finally back to the Paul that I married. Huh. She goes, the, the soldier has finally left you. And it's so good to see you again. But I was so in it that I didn't even know that I was soldiering all the time, right? So I've been through that indoctrination. I know, you know, very well what it's like to be caught in it and, you know, be trained to kill a commie for mommy and think that's what you got to do, but then come out the other side and go, oh my God, you know, I was a weapon being pointed by somebody else really thinking I was doing, you know, the work of protecting the nation, but turned out I was protecting a bunch of pirates that hide inside the fucking White House. Yeah, that's got to be, I mean, that's the root. I mean, we didn't get into the um, use of psychedelics for for veterans and PTSD, but that's a very, that's, um, I, I love that realization. I mean, I've worked with some vets and it's another one of these issues where it's complicated because on the one hand, Yes, certainly MDMA and plant medicines or whatever techniques we 
can use to help these young women and men who have been traumatized by their military service, we should, we should perform. But for the army to be the ones that are employing these techniques sort of irks me a bit because it scares uh, me. Yeah. They shouldn't be the ones it's, I know I, I did, we didn't, we didn't talk about MDMA, but I was very, very involved in the early, some of the early MDMA stuff. I had a laboratory that I created MDMA before it was illegal and conducted research and shared it and found, you know, what a You mean marvelous. before it was legal? Before it was illegal. In, in the oh, early you mean 90s. before it was even known? Yeah, it was, it was not widely known. In, in mm-hmm. the period like from 1981 to 1985, I was quite involved with it and continued Oh, so after. it was legal then? Yeah, didn't become illegal. Oh, that was confusing me. Yeah, yeah, didn't become illegal until 1985. Oh, now I understand what you were saying. And, um, you know, to help people come to terms with traumatic crises in their life and, you know, whether they were raped or brutalized or um, there wasn't wasn't a lot of servicemen there. but, But then to see this movement grow and the government being behind, like, let's use this to you know, that's, uh, I have some real strong reservations about that government approved program and the, and the, inst- the, the multi Rick Doblin's maps that, you know, that's, that's like, and the, this, the, the example that I give is if you can imagine, uh, we're back in the 1930s and Hitler is ordering his troops to go into the villages and round up the Jews and bring them to camps. And suddenly the soldiers are freaking out like, whoa, what do you mean? These are like, I went to school with these people. And they start having a crisis of conscience and they, and they, they don't want to do it. And they, they start, you know, acting traumatized. They beat their wives. They start committing suicide because they can't imagine the horror of the atrocities that they're being ordered to to commit, and suddenly it becomes, suddenly it becomes a a public relations dilemma for the Third Reich that the military is starting to abandon their orders until somebody in the German army comes up with this magic drug that you can give to these people and suddenly cure this problem. Well, that's what's happening today. These, these, these young men and women who are killing themselves at the rate of, what is it, like 20 or 30 a day suicides from military service? Yeah, it's a lot. Why are they killing? Because they've been ordered to commit these atrocities and they realize that, oh my God, they were tricked into fighting for this war and they find out they're just ordered to kill women and children and burn down these villages and, and, uh, they're the enemies and there's no one to talk to. That's why there's this, this epidemic of veteran suicides. You don't want the army coming in there and giving them this drug and powerful drug. Oh, oh it's okay. You know, you think we've got a cool army now or something that we can do this? Fuck that shit. That's, um, we should, we should, those, those kids that are, they should be re- they're not suffering from a disorder. That's not post traumatic stress disorder. That should be renamed. They should be called soldiers of conscience. They're the only sane people in the fucking military. They should be given a bag acting like human beings. The other people, we should, we should have, we should have a program for pre-traumatic stress disorder. 
And if you get the crazy idea that you want to sign up for the United States military, that's when you should be given your plant medicines or your MDMA. So you wake the fuck up and realize what area <laughs> is doing in the world. That's what I think about it. Yeah, I've I've had to I've had to rehab uh, several soldiers from post-traumatic stress disorder and all sorts of health problems that came when they came back from the Middle East. And you know what the most common comment I've gotten is I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I joined the military. Mm. I thought That's I was just going to get trained, get get a job and then get out and be happy ever after, but they came back and realized I said, "Well, <laughs> You know now, and um, it's you, the, the thought that came up, you know, the, the pill that they use, by the way, to uh, handle the trauma and still keep the ego strong is alcohol. The courage juice that makes you act like a fucking idiot, do crazy shit, but numbs your pain so you're not conscious of what you're doing. And that what a lot of Americans don't realize is why alcohol is so legal i mean so terribly legal and talk about i mean i would i can go off on the research i've done on alcohol but uh that that is it's always amazed me that you can get kicked out of the military for smoking a joint but you can drink yourself into submission and they've got all sorts of programs and they'll support you and that's kind of a normal thing to have happen but god forbid you smoke a joint you're the you're the devil's child yeah that's a whole other anyhow subject. Well, we have lots more to talk about, and I'm, I'm very grateful for all the research you've done. I'm grateful for all the – it's amazing, Robert, how you have a tremendous capacity in your mind to remember people, times, dates, places, events. You know, Lao Tzu was the caretaker of a library. You, you kind of have that Lao Tzu kind of ability to put things into perspective and find the – edge between yin and yang so people can see both sides of the mirror. And I'm grateful that you can do that because we need people like you to bring sanity into the world and common sense into the world and discernment into the world. And I love it because I get to learn so much from you and it helps me clarify my own position. And now, even though I told my buddy I thought he was absolutely fucking wrong about Terrence McKenna, I'm going to have to get down on my knees and kiss his feet and say, I think huh. maybe you were right. <laughs> it's an open question to me. Again, I'm not saying he was, but I'm saying there's, there's, some, there's some smoke there. And whether there's fire or not, it, it takes a, there are a few people that would know. It would not surprise me. He was. He yeah, was, well, you've certainly left me not nearly as convinced as I was. Yeah. We could do another program, maybe, you know, talk about all the, you know, the people. And this is, you know, kind of risky for me because, you know, I, I even may have been my, my um, coming into it and helping to spark this renaissance with conferences that I organized and connections that I made and my, the drug, like Alexander Shulgin. Is another guy who has these, you know, curious right wing connections to deep state organizations, Bohemian Grove. I would have never expected that. I've got both of his books. They're kind of like the chemist's dream manual. <laughs> yeah. Well, all, all of them, all my, you know, my, even Mircea Eliade, there, there's, a, there's a whole underside to this. Albert Hoffman, Gordon Wasson, Stan Groff had affiliations with um, right wing military dark issues in Czechoslovakia before he came over here in the Czech Republic. 
came over Yale. There was CIA stuff at Spring Grove. Like it's it's a it's hard. it's been interesting. Feel the booby traps, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. But um, that's where we're at. So let's make the most of it. Well, you know, at the end of the day, guess what? I'm looking out the window at God. I'm looking at God. I'm talking to God. I'm breathing God. And to me, the only way I can handle the world is to say, God, I'm doing my very best to help you realize what you are. And for a lot of people, that's a head fuck because they think God knows everything. But that's another podcast in itself. But um, I think at the end of the day, and the end of the podcast is if we just anchor ourselves in the reality that if you understand what God is, then this is all God godding. <laughs> and we have the free will to choose how we want to awaken each other to what love is, because that's the verb of God. The problem with God is it gets nouned to death. Yeah, Everybody I like that. talks about God as an, as an object, but love is the verb of God. And I think if we just look at what is sacred, you know, I say, look, I don't give a fuck about the politics of the world. We need water. We need food. We need air. We need each other. And if we lose track of taking care of the food, the water, the soil, and the air and each other, then we are getting caught in an illusion that leads to a lot of fucking pain. And you can get rid of all the books on religion because if you can't practice love and the responsibility of caring for nature, then you're already in deeper trouble than any drug's going to probably get you out of. Again, I think that's very well said. I love your uh, I love your work with stone stacking. I think I introduced you to that phrase, stone prayers. You know, that's a real. You did. And I, I ordered the book. Uh, it hasn't come here yet. I think it was a pretty obscure book and there was only one left. So I'm anxiously awaiting it. Yeah. So that's an interesting metaphor for what we're doing. You know, we're taking a lot of hard pieces and putting them together in a way that's beautiful and flows and is, um, yeah. is art. So I, that's, a, that's been a. And I loved your wall too. You built that stone wall with the snake-like pattern. And when, when I found out you and I were both into stonework, it was like mind-blowing for me. A couple of old guys that love to play with God's hard bits. <laughs> middle-aged, middle-aged guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, I'm fucking right here, baby. Um, I think the old part of me is I just get tired of the same bullshit over and over again. It's like, I'm, you know, sometimes I get tired of babysitting, to be honest with you. And uh, it's hard for me to watch the, the fabric of society and our young people have just lost all their agency. They're just so caught in social media and digital fantasy land and dangerous drugs. And I just, oh, it, it's just like, wow. I'll be interested to see what kind of um, comments we spark with this kind of conversation. I, I'm, I'm noticing that, you know, as I've been coming out more in the last couple of years, I, there are a lot of people that are, you know, 10 years ago, people would say, oh, Robert, you're just, uh, but now that more and more people say, we want to hear more of what you have to say. I, I feel that same way. This thing that I'm, I'm liking to expose is the enterprise, the psychedelic renaissance enterprise. More people are also noticing it. People that had gone to that MAPS conference that was in Denver a couple of weeks ago, they're like, oh my God, it was like, you know, used car salesman and, you know, that that 
There are a lot of people that have been drawn into the world of entheogens for the right reasons and are really disappointed with what is happening. So I think the more, you know, the more we, the more we tell our stories and share our observations, the, the more people are going to be empowered. We're going to, we're going to build a community. That's why, that's why I'm doing this. And, you know, these last few podcasts and um, you mentioned Aubrey Marcus, you know, he'd be an interesting guy to talk to. I've been, I've been watching him a little bit more. And um, he would be interesting to share some of these thoughts with. And you know, I wonder, I wonder about some of these characters, Jordan Peterson, and because uh, they seem to be sincere and wanting to share the beneficent properties of these substances, but they may be, they may just be uneducated as to um, this deeper level, and they may want to share that information with their audiences. Because, like I said, like the psychedelics attract dissidents. They know something's wrong. They want to. Or something further, like the like the young men and women that join the service. They're they're like a lot of them are good hearted. Like we want to fight for the good. We're the good America. We're good. But they were tricked. And once they realized, I mean, that's one that's one of our greatest hopes for a for a movement is that. And and one of the dangers is because our, our military. That it's important to have a military. We have enemies. We need a military. Yes, we do. But they're like drained. Unfortunately, we made most of them. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean the mili- I mean our enemies that are in our in the White House and in the House of Representatives. And oh yes, yes, yeah, yeah. If we had a military, they'd been they'd have been gone long ago. If we had a real military, uh, Bill Gates, Fauci, Soros, all of them would have been put in jail within the first three months of COVID. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But that, but the, but now you know, you military yeah. listen to some of these people in the whole vaccination program, and people need to wake up. We need to we need to enliven our warrior class. Totally. Yeah, and I think that you complain with your with your background. I'm doing my very best. Uh, by the way, Kyle Kingsbury is Aubrey's right or left hand, whichever side you want to go. So if you want to talk to Aubrey about this, just let Kyle know because um, he's the closest person to Aubrey. I mean, he's the one that basically got me, well, my, one of my level four practitioners who was also an instructor in training, Alex Rybczynski was working with Aubrey and opened the door, but Kyle also greased the hinges. So I've been on Aubrey's podcast, I think five times now. Oh. And I'm sure Aubrey would be very interested in talking to you and I'll, I'd be happy to send him an email and encourage that he listen to this podcast for oh. sure. <laughs> Let's do that. I, I would be interested in that. Yeah. Well, Robert, thank you. I don't want this to be our last podcast. I want this to be, be the beginning because I really feel that you and I not only have harmony and values, but we have enough life experience to be willing to look truth in the eyes and do our best to help others do the same. And I think that there's a lot yet for you and I to talk about. We only got halfway through my outline today. <laughs> and I'm just grateful. And so just keep letting me know anything that you're doing so I can support you any way that I can. I'm happy to share anything I can share with you as well. Thank you. Do you know, I, I think you do, um, G. Edward Griffin's work? I do. I haven't studied much of it, but I am familiar with it. Yeah. Wrote that book, The, the Creature from Jekyll Island, has done some good work on cancer. A, a very important, <clears throat> I just connected with him a few days ago. And he's invited me out to Southern California, and I have another friend, and my son is there. So I'm, I'm, I don't know when I'm going to do this because I, I so enjoy being in New England in the autumn. But I'm going to come out. I'm going to, you know, make a time, and we can, we can visit. Yeah, love it. Yeah. 
well, let, go ahead and tell everybody once again where to find you and, and your, your information, just since we haven't mentioned it for about an hour and a half here. Okay, so uh, I'm just starting to be more public. I have a Substack page, which I've only written one or two things on, but I, w- I would love people that, were, that have been interested in the topics that we've discussed to go visit there. And it's, um, it's alteredstatesofamerica.substack. That's one place where you, you just come and sign up and say, yeah, I'm interested. Let's hear the, the comment section. And I've got, a, I've got a series of articles that are chapters in my book that I'm getting ready to put out there. Um, and I also have a website, which is also alteredstatesofamerica.net. And, um, and there's a public part of it, just an introduction to me. Um, and then there's a, a paywall where you can get into my articles and my archives. Where not, and I'm going to be putting more stuff there, things from the Wasson and Leary archives. What's left, again, you know, I lost my whole library and archive in a fire. So I'm, I'm kind of starting new. Um, and also, kind of embarrassingly, I have a, I'm on Facebook where I've got a public page and I, and I can, um, I like to start little fires and have great conversations there. So that's, that's it for me. Perfect. Appreciate hearing from you and look forward to feedback on this and for your time and your energy. Let's do it again. My pleasure. Yeah, we'll do it again. And make sure you look me up whenever you're coming this way. I'd love to have you as a guest at the rainbow and take you through some rock lifting together and go in the sauna and meditate and talk to God together and everything that we're supposed to be doing when we get together. And I will close by saying thank you to all of you. And Robert, the people that listen to my podcast are very intelligent. I, I get, I'm always amazed at how willing they are to apply what I share with them and go out and do their best in the world. And so I'm grateful for all of you listening and thank you for sticking with it, uh, the podcast and, and listening to this point in the podcast. I think all of you are probably deadly clear on how important all these conversations I've been having with people like Robert are. And thank you to my sponsors for all your love and support and the amazing products that you make and your regenerative practices and being such a great example to the world of what health and nutrition is really all about. Thank you to all of you for anything that you buy from the sponsors. A little commission goes to me to support me to take the extensive time I put into the podcast to do my very best to support each of you. And so lots of love to all of you. I look forward to sharing something interesting and exciting and informative with you a week from the Tuesday that this podcast launches. And we will be back with Robert for sure, because I love Robert and I want to selfishly get more of his time. So I figure if I can bait him with another podcast, I might Uh get lucky. You can, can, brother. All right. God bless us all. Lots of love, everybody. Love to you. Uh Oh, thanks, Robert. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Robert Forte. You can find Robert online at alteredstatesofamerica.net. And you can also subscribe to his membership, where readers share and discuss ideas talked about in this podcast, as well as others. You can find him on Facebook at robert.forte.79 or visit his Substack page at alteredstatesofamerica.substack.com. Catch up with Paul on Instagram, TikTok and threads at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. 
You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our premier sponsors by Optimizers, Organifi and Paleo Valley, our podcast sponsors, Ned and Wild Pastures, and our preferred product sponsor, Peak Life. Please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discounts for listeners. The links, discount codes, and details are in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, and YouTube.